It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. It's Saturday. That means another edition of the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, this August the 1st. Listen to us live on replay at WeekendWatchdogs.com. Send us a tweet at Mike Silva Media at jbono611 and check us out on iTunes or the Weekend Watchdogs Facebook page. And joining me is my buddy, your buddy, everybody's favorite buddy, Joe Bono. Joe, lots to talk about, a lot of baseball on August 1st. That's so nice that we could actually talk. We have NFL, we have some training camp, but a lot of baseball. And since you and I have been doing the show, I think August began to fade out of the baseball season. We're even, we were even thinking talking Carmelo at times, but not today. We have a lot of baseball. This week has reinvigorated my baseball fandom because it was dormant. You know, it hadn't really been since 06, 07, 08, you know, six, seven years, a long time before I had anything to get excited about or get angry about as a baseball fan. And you know what? You get older you mature, you gain perspective, you don't think that these things matter to you as much. But this week, I have been so intense on both ends of the spectrum, from love to hate, back and forth. I mean, to recap the Mets week, this is the craziest week in Mets history. I mean, to start off, you know, they get the Sunday, they win, I have to blow in the lead on the Uribe, so you're feeling good after they go 2-2 two and two with the Dodgers. Day off Monday, getting ready for a big series against the Padres with Thor on the mound, and then you get the Henry Mejia suspension for 162 games. All right. But you know what? They make the Tyler Clipper trade that same day. You get the Mejia suspension. You're at the game. Thor's got a perfect game going into the uh, sixth, seventh inning. They win that game. You're feeling great. And then, and then you got what happens on Wednesday night, which was – Amazing theater, Mike, but the strangest thing that's ever happened on a baseball field, and why is it always the Mets? Why is it always the Mets? You had, and the thing that was most amazing is that as I was preparing all week for this show, I was dead set saying, you know, the whole theme is going to be, really, I thought, for Collins and Alderson to get angry at social media because things got leaked during the game was silly. I was sitting there saying something's not right with Flores still being out there. Anybody takes a pulls a player out of the out of the game. I di- I got to tell you with the Gomez trade, I liked Carlos Gomez and I felt he fit because he was center fielder and I liked the fact that he was signed through next year because they're going to need to address offense in the off season. It's yep. it's not just something that this is going to be fixed now. But when I first heard they had Wheeler in the deal, I was like, because Gomez is a guy that. He was traded for a reason. There was comparisons to his offensive game morphing back when he was with the Mets into a Jimmy Rollins type of offensive player. That's actually, that's actually not a bad comparison because he has that power. Uh, I think Jimmy Rollins in his prime was a better offensive player. But Flores is, is a – for me and Joe, and that's where the Mets were going. Maybe the Mets listened to the show. Lagares for Gomez would have been – I would have been okay with. And I'm okay with Flores in the deal at that point. Wheeler, I was like, well, yeah, I understand. He's not going to probably pitch full-time until 2018. But 
obviously it's nice to think that Zach Wheeler is your fifth starter. Um, with that said, what was going to be a deal for any player that was going to be under contract beyond this year? Any player that's going to be at the rental, the price is going to be Wheeler, whether it was Carlos Gomez, whether it was Justin Upton, well, Justin Upton not a free agent, but either it was either Gomez or Jay Bruce, it was going to have to be Wheeler. Because look at the risk the other team would be taking on having a player that wasn't going to be able to help them until June, July of next year. And then you're looking at a half year of him coming back off Tommy John surgery. Like you said, sure. probably not even getting back to the pitcher he can be until 2017. So ultimately, what deal are you happier with if you're a Mets fan? Would you have preferred Carlos Gomez, center field, could lead off, get some speed under contract next year, and no wheeler, or you trade Michael Fulmer, 1.88 ERA, double A, probably on the fast track, could be up here next year in the major leagues and not the year after, for a guy who's with the most rental player in history is Ioana Cespedes because of this crazy clause, Rock Nation, your buddies, have in his contract, to where he has to sign with the team he's on, have a five-day window at the end of the season. Otherwise, he can, if he re-signs with that team, he cannot re-sign with that team until May 15th. So he is a rental. No he deal. Is no way coming back to the Mets. And I, and I talked to, to one of our buddies, and actually I, I texted Howard Megdale yesterday, and Howard said, you know, by all information that he's gathered, this is truly a rental. Um, there's never, when you, and, I, and I have to say, I've been on the fence this last week about whether this is a go-for-it team. And I'm the one that lectures everybody, you know, don't collect prospects, go for it. And I've been on a fence with this team because I'm like, you know, there's, there's just a lot of things here that worry me. I think the Nationals still have a, a big 16-4 and four run in them, and the Mets can't you know, keep up with that. The wild card is not a realistic path anymore. I just don't How think is it not is. realistic path, Mike? They're three and a half games out of the wild card. And, and that's with Chicago the Giants. That's Sam- with the Giants. That's with the Giants coming off their hottest point of this season. They've already had their great 10-11 game stretch. They're not going to keep that up the rest of the way for two months. I don't They're know. They're three and a half games out. They're not sticked out of the wild card. But they got Chicago in front of them as well. Mets are just as good as Chicago, if not better. That is a flawed team I'm not well. denying that. But the thing is, the, the, the more realistic path and the more controllable path is Washington. And here's what I'll say. When you make this deal, there's always going to be pain. Losing Michael Fulmer is going to be painful. Because I, you know, I think Michael Fulmer will be a serviceable major league pitcher. I'm not a scout, but the periphery, though, if you have Wheeler coming back and you got the guys on rotation, there's no place for him here. You had to give up something. I like how uh, Keith Law, he's one of the guys that used to work in the Blue Jays front office. He was all upset about the, 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 the pitcher the Mets gave up for Cliff, Clifford. You know, he's another guy. Assets, assets, future, future, future. At this point, I think Sandy Olderson said it best. They feel they have a team that will be dangerous in the postseason. Check, I agree with that. Um, I think he also said, if you listen to his words, this was as much about making the postseason as marketing this team and gaining the credibility to get to the next step because it kept being about 2014. Then it was about 2015. Then you kept hearing it was about 2016. So now the Mets are in a point where, okay, they're going for it. Um, who knows? Things could change. Maybe Cespedes, that five-day window. I don't think the Mets' finances will match up. But maybe it's the best thing where, if you remember, when the Mets brought Piazza over, he didn't go to free agency. They locked him up in the period. Now, at that point, it was, I think, a 15-day window. Now it's only five. 
Uh, and I don't they didn't mess around. What, this is what we can what offer. The, take it or leave it. I don't understand what the benefit of the window being only five days uh, for Cespedes and Rock Nation is because ultimately a team like the Mets could create playroll flexibility they don't have at the start of the offseason, later on in the offseason, and then be another team that can be part of a bidding war for a player. So I don't understand why that clause would be in the contract. I understand the idea of saying, well, that team, you can kind of incentivize for that team to try to get a deal done with that player prior to year end. But in most cases, right. that guy is going to go to free agency anyway. Um, listen, I, like I, we've I think... talked about, we talked about this with Syndergaard and Matt and that the Mets ultimately were going to have to make a deal that stung a little bit. And if Michael Fulmer on this little bit of a meteoric rise through double A this season is the pitcher that makes it sting a little bit. So be it, even if it's a rental, you know what? They gave up a nice prospect, six foot five, you know, Texan kid out of high school, went to the same high school as Scott Casimir for Tyler Clippard and Keith law wants to say, Oh, well, it's going to be only 20, 25 appearances worth of Tyler Clippard that you're giving up this type of a prospect. That's not good value. Well, after the Mejia suspension, thank God they made the Tyler Clipper trade because if right. you're bridging, they need an arm struggling. was going to be Bobby Parnell and Robles and Torres. I know they pitched all great yesterday, uh, that was not yeah. going to be Robles good enough good. and get squared away. And you're going to have more seven innings of one and no run games where pitchers are getting no decisions. It's happening anyway. You would get even more of those if uh, they didn't have the Clipper deal in place. And they might need another bullpen arm. I mean, that's that's something that with well, they need Blevins. Blevins finally got cleared to pitch. So yeah, maybe Blevins, Blevins is another back. month away, though, Joe. Blevins is another month away. Yeah, he's another he month away. I don't think he just. Though, Mike. They have an opportunity now in terms of reinforcements. You got Darno back last night. You know, right? Yep. I don't want to start talking about it, but Wright actually is on baseball field doing something. Can't count Maybe on him, he comes back I'm not counting on him, but I'm saying they've already kind of protected themselves with Juan Uribe. But you have a potential where, if you look at what this lineup was like a week ago, as to what it could look like two weeks from now, three weeks from now, Cespedes, Darno, Wright, with those guys. Options. And then look at the bench right. now. Kelly Johnson on the bench, Juan Uribe on the bench, Paul Wecky staying up, being on the bench. I mean, this is a completely different team. Now I'm just going to get Eric Campbell out of my life, um, which I don't need to go into that later. What the heck he was doing in the game as long as he was in the game uh, yesterday with Kirk. You still have the manager. The manager didn't go. My God. The manager didn't go to. The manager, unfortunately, didn't go uh, to another team on the deadline deals. Uh, Look, Cespedes has got a lot of power, and he's a premium commodity in this game today of right-handed power. I think the five-day window on that point before we get to the, the team, and I do want to get, because the Yankees made an interesting decision, which we'll see if they stay the course with that. I think the five-day window from a negotiating standpoint is that you have a team that there's that proverbial gun to your head. And you have to almost make them, and they may have to say, okay, they have to think about what the market for a player will be. And sometimes that's easy, sometimes that's not. I mean, you've seen what Nelson Cruz, what Nelson Cruz wanted and what Nelson Cruz got one offseason was totally different. So in this situation, you're telling the Mets in five days, you set the market. And when no team wants to set the market. They want to see the market come to them. So from a negotiating standpoint, I think Rock Nation certainly, and it wasn't Rock Nation. I don't think they were the original agents in this with some suspicious signed this contract. I don't know when the clause got into... I don't think uh, it was Rocky, so I'm not going to give Jay-Z any credit for that. Um, Mets can't get a draft pick for him either. Mets won't get a draft pick for Cespedes either. This is purely eight weeks. 
So that's what it is. You know, maybe the Mets turn around. I, financially, they haven't added any money because they got insurance money for right. They got most of Mejia's salary this year. The two and a half million they been, uh, eleven and a half million dollars. I think the number was this year between Mejia's yeah, suspension so they just, and right. Eleven and a half million. So, so you know what? Reinvested. Thanking, thanking the ownership and thanking Jeff and Fred yeah, for the payroll flexibility. They are net net in a better situation this year from the start of the year to now in terms of money spent right. when you calculate the insurance money and the suspension right. money saved on Mejia's contract. I think they got, so a, I think they got some bucks in Oakland, too. I think Oakland threw in some bucks for, uh, for Clipper, too, if I'd have to look at the, the exact number. So, look, all I'll say is this before we get to the Yankees. Yes, the Mets are a better team. Yes, I'm glad they went for it. A little squeamish on Fulmer, but you're right, Joe. I can't be a hypocrite. You got when you go for it, there's going to be pain no matter what deal you make. And if Fulmer's a middle-of-the-rotation pitcher, uh, although he'd be cost-controlled and cheap on the Mets, you can recoup that. It's not like I think you traded Matt Harvey or, or, uh, or Jacob deGrom or Matt. Those guys have more upside than Fulmer. Um, however, here's the thing. This is the weekend. The next two days are extremely important. And I know that there's, uh, you know, 60-some-odd games left. And baseball is a marathon, and no one game uh, decides anything. But you have to make the move this weekend. I've been warning. See, the Nationals are not listening to me. They obviously don't follow my Twitter. Because when I was in the building for the Syndergaard uh, event on Tuesday, I said, if I'm the Nationals, you better stop fooling around with this division. And I've been referencing Mets history with the 07 Mets. Now, the Mets really did start to push the Phillies away, but they, did, they, could have had the, they could have had the NL East in 07, 10, 12, 15 games in their rear if they had played any good baseball in the summer. They, it would have been seven-game lead. It would have been, so you kind of give yourself that cushion when things go down. If you remember, in 06, the Mets had like a 15, 16-game lead, and the Phillies did pick up about seven games at the end of the year when they started to kind of cruise the Mets at that point. So you want to have a cushion. Nationals better clean this thing up now. And last night was a big loss for them because if you beat the Mets last night, you almost keep telling them, you're not close enough. Five is, not, is a pennant race, but it doesn't, it's, not like, it's not like two. It's not like two. And if I am the Nationals, these next two games, you've got to get the Mets back on it. Because the Mets lose the next two games, it's a different feeling coming out of this. You, and God forbid well, they the got swept. Have... The better thing is, is the moot point on Monday. If they get swept, I mean, if you no, wanted to give happen, the Mets but... the pitching, if you if you wanted to give the Mets the pitching edge last night, um, certainly you should have. Um, and and you know, Gonzalez was okay last night. The Mets made him battle, didn't get any big hits. Harvey pitched probably his best game of the year. Uh, had his best control, probably overthrew a little bit in the eighth inning there, and Escobar gets the base hit. But this is the game for the Mets where you have the major pitching advantage. You have Cespedes and all the electricity that he's going to bring being in the ballpark today with Jacob deGrom versus Joe Ross. This is the game. You win. It's not close. You know, go out there and win 4-0, four 5-1 four today. And then know what? Right. Sunday night baseball, you have the matchup where you got Zimmerman and Syndergaard. And worst case scenario, you're two games out. Someone put on Twitter in terms of three in the loss uh, column. Mets, Mets wins uh, this weekend and their general mood. Zero wins this weekend would have meant see you in 2016. One win would have meant we're in deep trouble. Two wins is we're right in the middle of it. Three wins, we're going to win the division. And that will be the attitude of Mets fans. If they sweep the Nationals, that they will win this division now. You could make the argument 
that the Mets don't, if you really want to just say, what's, and I'm going to bring up the schedule right now. We broke, I, broke, last, I broke it up uh, last, uh, last week I no, talked about it. No, the last weekend of the season. Three, but, the last weekend of the season, Washington, Washington, Washington. And the final game is at 3 o'clock. I think the last game of the year, everybody starts at the same time this year. I think that's that new thing they did. Everyone starts at 3.10 p.m. because they don't want early game, late game, and, 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 and people sitting around. If you are – two games is asking a lot to sweep the team. But if you, you only have to be one game back going into that weekend between now and then. So you almost have to – you don't have to go past the Nationals. You control your destiny that last weekend. No scoreboard watching, nothing. That's why I think the realism is the, the race. And it's not because I think the Mets – let me see the Mets play 10 games over 500 baseball again. I think they have the potential, but they haven't done it in a long time. I know they're as good as the Cubs. But there's other things in play. You know, if the Giants played a high level with the Dodgers, I don't think the Mets could play at that high level. Not because they can't play it in the next 60 days, because of all that's happened already. They've been an under 500 team since May 1st. They've been six games under. They're also a team decimated by injuries, both in in, in the staff and in the everyday lineup. They weren't an overall... They, they weren't, it, but they you know, weren't an overly Bobby deep Parnell lineup to begin Thursday. with. They weren't an overly deep game team to begin with on the lineup. And when you took out Wright and you took out Darno and Kadir was having a bad year, right now as they're currently constituted, Granderson is playing some of his best baseball in a number of years. You have now Cespedes playing left field. Duda, I don't know why he wasn't in the lineup. I know it's a lefty, but give me a better reason than that. Playing now uh, at his best, a three home run game, another home run after that. You got Darno back. This is a different type of lineup. And, you know, Thursday's game notwithstanding, the Mets record when they score four runs is incredible. Like 30 games over 500. That's how good this rotation is, Mike. They don't give up three, four runs a game, this rotation. And it's just a matter of can you get six outs out of your bullpen each and every night? Because most of the time when Bartolo Colon is not on the hill, most of the games, these guys are going at least seven. And it's usually seven innings of two runs or less. You may want to think about when Matt's comes back, and I'm not sure what the stat. I know he's not throwing yet, and I know that's a serious injury, and I don't know if this would be in his best interest in terms of the injury. Maybe you put him in the bullpen. No. So who's going to come out of the rotation? <laughs> so what are you going to do with Cologne? Cologne's out. Just going to... Cologne's out of the rotation. So Cologne's going to go to the bullpen? Yeah, Absolutely. Why not? You think Matt's could go deep into games after being on the shelf for a month? I don't know. If he can, he won't be the starter. But they're not going to start putting him in the bullpen, and it's something he's never done before. Absolutely not. One inning for a month? No. Cardinals have done if it. If, Cardinals if have anything, done it with their starters. Anything, if anything, if he's healthier, it's beneficial to the Mets to have him start because he's not going to be up against the innings limits that some of the other guys are, that they're kind of playing with right now. So they need Matt right. to come back and to be part of the rotation to keep the innings limits down for everybody else. And whether or not it's Cologne that becomes that spot starter to give everyone else a breather and extend the rotation out. I mean, based on performance, you know from the first inning right now whether or not Bartolo Cologne is either going to get lit up or he's got his good stuff, and you hold your breath for that first inning. And then when that first inning's over, you know whether or not he's going to be the good Bartolo or the very, very not give you a chance in the game Bartolo Cologne. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's your you're Bartolo right. for starters. I know where you're going. Two games. We're two, Mets are two games out right now, and the last two day games during the week, the last two weeks, where you know I'm yeah. at, at the office refreshing game day 
uh, with, you know, getting different, completely different. frustrated with the Parnell and then yep. the disaster of Thursday, which I was so infuriated, yep. Mike. I was sitting at my desk, like, beside myself, looking aimlessly. I couldn't do anything. My phone was ringing with work-related stuff. I wasn't even answering the calls. I was just like, absolutely, Absolutely honest to God on swear on the Bible. When I brought up game day on Thursday and I saw that there was a rain delay with two outs and two strikes, I said, I don't know, that's not good, bringing a guy back on that. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about. America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan of the New York Post, will be joining us in just a minute. Uh, we'll go through the Mets. I know we've been talking Mets here in the open. Yankees uh, made not any moves, but an interesting decision to go with the younger players or hold on to the younger players. Philip Bondi of the New York Daily News will join us at 11 to talk about his new book, about the Pine Tar game. So uh, an interesting little uh, baseball historical memento, New York baseball and Kansas City baseball historical memento. And then in the 11 o'clock hour, we'll also get into the early returns, a couple of days from Jets and Giants camp. So a lot to talk about. Stay with us. You are listening to the Weekend Watchdog, Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up till noon. Kevin Kern in the New York Post right after this. Dogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdogs here on this Saturday, first day of August, the Dog Days of August, and joining us uh, from the New York Post at Where's Kernan on Twitter. I call him now America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan. Kevin, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. Good morning. How are you? Hey, fellas, and Mike, um, I appreciate that. I, I, I really believe, uh, you know, Andy McCullough. That all began when Andy McCullough, who's now with Kansas City Royals, um, was a Yankees uh, beat writer, and we were up in Fenway, and I took a nice selfie, you know, standing in Fenway. It was the year they were celebrating the hundredth uh, anniversary of Fenway, and I said, "Oh." And I showed it to McCullough, who's got a very dry, wry sense of humor. Young kid who's uh, very talented. And uh, he goes, ah, America's most beloved sports writer and America's most beloved ballpark. And uh, it just took <laughs> off from there. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, a, before we get into this. You got to have a sense of humor in this job, you know? You do. And this has been a wild week. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll say twofold. First of all, I, you know, Terry's press conference, I don't know if you were America's most beloved sports writer after the Gomez thing on uh, – on Terry's press conference, because you were pushing him a little bit, you and others uh, as well that night. Um, and then, has this been one of those stranger Mets weeks that you've seen in, in a while? Yes, uh, yes, on both accounts. And and uh, starting with the press conference, first of all, that whole night was bizarre, crazy. And, you know, I think in a way, and, you know, you and I have differed on Terry from day one. And, and I'm not saying, you know, he's he's not, you know, he's not John McGraw, but he does have uh, his heart and soul in the right place. And even then, when I was pushing him, 
you know, he was, I was pushing him to get answers. So, you know, good quotes for the paper and try to get to the bottom of this. And, and you could tell from his answers, the bottom line was that, uh, Mike, was that nobody from up above bothered to call Terry, you know, which, which to me was, is a problem. I mean, you got to call I Terry. I think the leaks were from Milwaukee. Kevin, I really honestly think the leaks were Milwaukee, and that's why the Mets didn't know what was going on. Well, I, I got two sides of that, too. Uh, you know, I put a lot of thought into this because you can see what's going on now with all these stories and how the, who's breaking them and everything like that. You know, a lot of guys associated with MLB are getting these stories. So it's, um, you know, and, and more power to them. You know, they do a great job, every one of them. But, you know, so they they got to be either coming from the Players Association, uh, you know, someone in MLB. The bottom line is it's going to get out this day and age. And, um, you know, uh, you know, like, for example, our Joel Sherman, I thought, did a phenomenal job this week with his coverage of all the trades, all the teams. It was unbelievable because I've been through that many times. It is not an easy job. It is not an easy job. So, yeah, this got out, and and I do think there's some, you know, I know they didn't, you know, I, I think I came up with a pretty good tweet last night after the home run by Flores. I said, hip, hip, hooray, you know, because of uh, obviously the hip situation <laughs> with Carlos Gomez. Uh, but but I do think, you know, looking at and we've been around the Mets a long time now. This new group, there's no doubt in my mind that they tried to pull a fast one and tried to get some money attached to it at the end. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, and all of a sudden the hip showed up because, you know, how, how could that hip all of a sudden, you know, be okay for the or the doctors that different in Houston? I mean, come on. So I think there's, I think the Mets tried to pull a fast one, got caught. But I will say this about Sandy. He's the luckiest GM in the world right now, and he got his job done. He got the big bat. He got his status, and he got, uh, you know, he didn't trade Flores. He got another win out of it because of that. And you know what? The Flores situation has given the Mets a toehold to become a team again. And, and and we could talk about this all day. I mean, the Mets are just the fascinating. Like I said, this was another. I, I thought I had some great tweets today. If you're not following me on Twitter, uh, people, you're, you're missing some, some good ones. Because I also mentioned this week that the Mets are not no longer a baseball team. They're a reality show. And look what happened this week. This is a reality show, Mike. This is not a baseball team. And, and it's fascinating. And for Flores to hit that home run last night, for, 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 and, and for Terry to go off a little bit when I'm, I'm questioning him, and, and even to show a sense of humor in the middle of this, because if you remember, uh, as I was following up, you know, um, Zach, Zach Wheeler, who, who I think a lot of, you know, he's got a brother, Jacob Wheeler, who I contact all yep. the time on on, uh, on Twitter. He's an artist, writer type guy, good guy. So I, mis- I misspoke in my question because my head was spinning that night. And I said something like, well, and I refer to him as, as Jacob Wheeler. And Terry had a funny line about that, you know. So, so it shows that Terry, even though he's going off, he's not completely... Furious. He's he's more mad at the situation than at writers and uh, and even him. He was lucky last night. I mean, I was watching the game, wondering what was going on there. You know, signing up lefties against lefties, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, it worked because they left that lefty in there. And Flores, Flores, who can you know, Flores, who has a, a power zone much like a lefty hitter, got the pitch he needed to do and drove it. And uh, so Terry came out, you know, smelling uh, like honey once again and. Uh, the bottom line here, though, is we have a pennant race for the Mets, and that's what we all wanted. And if you go way back, and again, I'm this, this is the last tooting of the horn here, but it's true. I picked the Mets to be in the World Series in the post-preseason poll. With the, with the, and I think I even said it on your show prior, my whole thought process was this pitching, the Mets don't realize how good this young pitching is. It's epic, 
And at some point, pride will kick in, and they will go trade for good hit, a couple good hitters. Now, it took a long time for that to happen, but and they fell into suspense a little bit. And um, but uh, here we are, exactly as I predicted. And I think they'll be. I think they're bound to the playoffs. I, I don't see how they can't get in the playoffs with that pitching staff. Weekend watchdogs, Joe Bono, Mike Silva, and you want to follow Kevin McKernan on Twitter at Where's Kernan to follow the reality show that is the New York Mets and New York baseball. Kevin, ultimately, which deal do you like better? Let's say there was no hips involved, there was no money involved, there was no espionage and leaks and everything else. What deal was better for this team over the next two months and then into next year, Wheeler and Flores for Carlos Gomez or giving up a very talented prospect in Michael Fulmer for what really is a 60-game rental in Cespedes? Well, absolutely door number two because um... – Wheeler, you know, this, if you if you go on the internet and check things with people who supposedly know pitching mechanics, and I'm, again, I always say I know more baseball than your average writer because I played baseball in college, and I'm not just locked into numbers. Um, uh, but I think, you know, there are people that question Wheeler's uh, motions, his pitching motions, saying it could lead to more problems down the road. But they also question formers. So so we don't know with either guy if they're gonna survive. But here's the here's why I like deal number two better. I think you got a better hitter, um in Cespedes, and I think you have a you have a, a, a more of a fearsome hitter and he's you know, a right handed guy that they they really need it because Kadire and Wright aren't around. And then also you get to keep Flores and you get to keep Wheeler and, and another thing, again, I, I eventually the Mets do everything I ask them to do, it just takes months. But I, I was the one from day one when they put Flores at shortstop. I said, "This is ridiculous. He's not a shortstop. You're, you're hurting the kids grow. Put him at second base or third base, and move Murphy to third or vice versa." And now, when he does play second, you see a much more confident player. So, so, so I think Flores can be, a, you know, he can be a productive player for them. So they would have lost. And I love the fact that guys want to be there. I, I don't think, you know, that can't be measured by war. UZR or any of that stuff. Guys that want to be there are special players, and you can't tell me that the the Mets aren't rallying around Flores now, and, and and they don't feel better about themselves. So so they get the bat they wanted. They get to keep the pieces that probably are more prominent for them in the future. If the other kid turns out to be a great pitcher, more power to him. It takes something to give something, and, and Sandy finally finally gave in a little bit and decided not to just try to make a steal every time he makes a deal. Every deal is not going to be Travis Darnell and Noah Syndergaard. And, um, and and if you see, too, what's happened this past week with Toronto, they've made the same mistakes. They've um, they've traded some tremendous young pitching. I, I, again, I'm not an expert on all these young guys until I see them. I haven't seen these guys, but there's some scouts I'm close to that told me the other night at, at City Field that you won't believe the kind of talent that Toronto traded in these deals to get who they got. They got top players too, of course, but they really gave away some great talent and gave away their future. But that's what happens when you have desperate GMs and that's what was going on in Toronto. And that's also what happened here. You know, we pinned Sandy literally against the wall last week. And that was, I thought, I was there that day and I had guys from SMY, other media people say, thank God you were there today because you really held them his feet to the fire. Because I, I I wasn't taking the garbage anymore, Mike. And when he, the thing that put me over the top was when Sandy gave me the quote about we really like the peripheral data on on Campbell, 
And when I when he said that, I I literally snapped. You know, I said, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> Peripheral dad, and this is again, I like Sandy, but I also people are afraid. People take Sandy way too serious because he takes himself. He's a lawyer, Kevin. He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer, and and he'll you know he'll he'll take your words. And I always have a little joke too on Twitter whenever Sandy gives one of his press conferences. And I will say this: this part of Sandy I like. He's so bizarre, but um, he, he, I always do Sandy's word of the day. Perfect with the word of the day, but. Don't try to buy. Don't <laughs> sell me that Sue Campbell has got good peripheral data when he's hitting like 170. And how about looking at a batting average? And how about how about really delving into sports? And this is something I learned a long time ago, and I want the listeners to hear this very closely because it, it, it's going to help you become a better fan. Years and years, decades ago, in a different sport, Hubie Brown once told me that when he's facing a team, he always wants the worst hitter, I mean the worst shooter to take a shot. So he'll leave him open on if he has to double team or triple team somebody else. That's exactly what happens to Soup Campbell. They're not afraid of him, so they'll throw the pitch right down the middle. And yes, he may hit a ball hard. You know, he may have a, a next of a lot. It's okay. But other guys would have deposited those balls into the seats or into the left field corner. He may be lining out the center field. So don't give me the garbage that this peripheral data that he's a he's a good everyday player. He's a backup player. And I also said that day. Sandy, your backups have to play less, not more. He wanted his backups to play more. No, you need to go out and get a Cespedes, play him more, and then use your backups accordingly, and, and lo and behold, you have a better team. So that's my little rant. There you go, Kevin Kernan, at Weir's Kernan on Twitter of the uh, the New York Post. Moving to the Yankees, I think it's been interesting because there's still deals that could be could be had for the Yankees. They tried to get Kimbrell. They were going to give up the speedy young shortstop that's down in in Charleston, uh, take on Jerko's uh, contract. Very disappointing shortstop with San Diego, but a guy that has you know a little bit of pop. Um, and and who knows what happens when you put pinstripes on. With the moves that have been made in the American League, and and I like the athlete move as a, as a bench player. And now with Pineda hurt, I mean the Yankees are are boring, but they're boring in a good way. They're six games up. I think they're headed to the playoffs. And I said a week ago, Kevin, I, the American League, uh, the Yankees are lined up to really being a great spot to go to the World Series. Now, things have changed a little bit. Give me a synopsis on the Yankees, what they decided to do. Severino's now uh, you know, going to make a start. Uh, it's interesting there, but interesting in a different way than what we've been talking about with the Mets. Yeah, the Yankees have gotten, uh, you know, they're, they're not like the, the evil empire anymore. They're kind of a little bit more of a, you know, they're more of a heartwarming story themselves with what A-Rod is done. And, you know, Again, two weeks ago, I wrote the column. Well, it was maybe about 10 days ago. I wrote the column that Tex, I know people were going to laugh at the time at it, but he's the MVP in the American League. I don't care what you say. I know we got Trout. I know he's unbelievable. But where would the Yankees be without Mark Teixeira? And again, last night, two home runs. This guy's having an unbelievable year. Um, and be- one of the big reasons he's having an unbelievable year, and that's why I framed the story, is because A-Rod is back and they have a close relationship. He supports, you know, gets... You know, A-Rod helps. They help each other in the lineup, obviously. Um, but there's still a part of the Yankees having said all this. And I love the fact they're bringing up Severino, although scouts I talked to said he's still not ready. Um, but, you know, you never know how that goes. I always like to bring up a young guy. Like he, This is why I was clamoring for the Mets to bring up Syndergaard and Mats earlier than they did on both, uh, especially Mats. Um but you like to bring up a young guy because then they get challenged. They're around veterans, and then they, you know, you see what they really have. So maybe Severino's better than we thought down in the minors. So we'll see where it goes. 
and that's it's it's always nice for the Yankees to bring some youth in because they're always such a uh, kind of a boring old team. And um, I am concerned about the Yankees pitching. Have been day one. The Pineda situation seems to be mimicking the uh, Tanaka situation. And I know I had people on Twitter like C.J. Nikowski ripping me for for um, for uh, you know the uh, situation with Tanaka. But I'm still convinced he's not close to being Tanaka, the Tanaka that we saw that first half of the year uh, last year. So. So the Yankees pitching, will they be able to get by? I think you hit it on the head. In the American League, anything possible. It's a bad league right now. And most of these trades, if you notice, a lot of these trades, it's National League guys going to the American League. And I'm surprised the Tigers. I saw Dave Dombrowski last week up at Cooperstown. And from talking to him, I didn't get the feeling I didn't get the feeling that he was going to uh, sell out, you know, and sell off um, things. But, it's, you know, I guess it's a smart move because it's a rental there, which is for this. But uh, the bottom line here is um, – um, there's no good teams in the American League. There really isn't. And the Yankees can buzz right through. Now, Toronto, if everything comes together, you know, they made a they made a couple trades that are very interesting. Don't get me wrong. They brought in some talent. But they're still pretty far back. So they got to get it together quickly. And if they do, then, then I think we could have a race in the AL East, and that would be fun to see. Uh, but I just, I'm like you. I think the Yankees are in the playoffs and have a clear shot at the World Series. And, and wouldn't it be something if we get a Subway Series this year, not only in September, but in October? That would be unbelievable. And those three games in September, I think when the schedule came out, people said, well, this is interesting. You know, what do those games really mean something? And it looks like they absolutely will. Just back to the Yankees, because you called them, you know, a boring old team. And I think a lot of New York, if you listen to their sports radio, the Mets are dominating the conversation. Yet the Yankees are scoring 21 you know, runs in a game. They have 13 runs last night. You have Mark Deshera, you know, with another two-run home run game, you know, setting the all-time record with 14 times he's done that from home run from both sides of the plate. Gregorius is playing well. Um, you got John Ryan Murphy hitting three-run home runs in Minnesota opposite field. So why do we feel is it happening with the Mets is just so crazy that we can't even give the Yankees their due even when they're playing an exciting brand of baseball right now? Absolutely. When I when I say boring old, I meant that's 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 their that's their mo through the years, and and they've changed that a little bit this year. They've made themselves much more exciting. And Didi Gregorius, again, we're going way back when when I went to Curacao and you had me on the show afterwards. I said how mm-hmm. oh, uh, this kid is going to be good. Give this kid a chance. And and to his credit, he made some major adjustments in his swing and his front leg, which he needed to do. And now he's he's a he's he's a decent hitter now, and and of course you know the the Yankees I think Pineda has been key for them. If he had been, if he could have stayed healthy and on the role that he was on early in the year, wow, then we really have something with the Yankees. But I think I think the Mets just have that electric young pitching that puts them ahead of the Yankees in the emotional end. Because you look at those guys and it's like wow, every every night you get something special. Whereas with the Yankees, you're just waiting for another piece to fall apart on the pitching man. That's why um, basically Cashman guiding Severino to this point and then bring him up is a good move by them. Because maybe Severino will give you that little bit of edge and all of a sudden the Yankees, you're not just talking about the Mets young pitchers, you're talking about him as well. Also the Yankees, I think they got lucky in that they didn't they didn't pick up Kimbrell. I, um, you know, I think that they would have given away too much with that young shortstop. And um, the other thing with the Yankees, too, I did mention last week, um, John and, and Susan during the post-time fifth inning, I said they asked me who, who the, I would go out and trade. And I, would, I said, 
I would go get Chapman. And the reason I would go get Chapman is because he, he, he just puts you over the top in a dominant situation with the bullpen. Now, obviously, the price was too high, so they couldn't do that. Kimbrell's a second-tier guy, but he's the thing with Kimbrell, and people don't understand this, he has, when he pitched in Atlanta, he had a certain leverage situation where his pitches were almost starting out higher and coming down. Uh, he's lost that a little bit. I think he's the kind of guy that's got to pitch up in the strike zone. And um, I think with the with the Padres, they have him so focused on pitching down, he's lost a little bit of who he is. Now, maybe Yankees, Larry Rothschild is one of the best could have fixed that. But I, I'm not as excited about Kimball now as I was in past years. So the Yankees, uh, you know, I understand where they are completely across the board. They you know that second base situation is still a little shaky. Um, but with Teixeira doing his thing, A-Rod being a human being, which he's never really been in the major leagues before, which makes him that much more interesting. And, again, you know, I've always called him Mr. Entertainment. And uh, he, he's really living up to it. Ellsworth being his little wacky self. I mean, the Yankees do have some, some character and some color. It's just that it's more like the image of the Yankees through the years is, is a little bit more professional than the Mets. And this happened in 86, too, don't forget. And in the 80s, when the Mets, when the Mets came in 69, when the Mets came along, they were always looked at as the heartbeat team, whereas the Yankees were always back then. This is, uh, and this is for your younger listeners who don't understand this, but the Yankees were known as United States Steel. In other words, a, a, an organization that you couldn't beat. You know, uh, It was just get it done at any price, like back when we were a, comp- a country that actually made things. you know. And uh, United States Steel was the biggest business in the world. That's who the Yankees were. So the Yankees have always fought that little image issue with the Mets. But it's fun for the Yankees to be themselves and the Mets to be themselves. And, and again, I can't say enough how much this Flores home run makes the Mets more of a endearing team and a team that will believe in itself no matter what the situation is. And before all that stuff happened, one last thing on the Mets, before all that stuff happened, my original column that night before Flores cried on the field and everything, and it died because that's the way the business is. Sometimes you write something has to be replaced by something. But my original column was I talked to Duda, I talked to Harvey, I talked to Nice. And I talked to Parnell, and I talked to uh, one other young player. I forget who it was, but they all told me how this was the weekend they were going to take control of the division. So they were they were talking big before that, and that got lost in the sauce because of all the crazy stuff that happened. And of course, they they lost those two games to the Padres in this, the second one in the most bizarre fashion imaginable. Um, but they they were thinking in their minds, okay, we're going to take control of the situation. So they were thinking that on Wednesday night. What do you think on Saturday is they're thinking after just beating these guys in extra innings and also finally having reinforcements? So I think it's, uh, you know, I think the Yankees have done a great job this year looking back at everything. And, and now the Mets have finally gotten to where taking advantage of the pitching they have. So, Kevin, at Where's Kern on Twitter, where else are you going to be? Obviously, at City Field. Uh, you sound pumped up to watch some good baseball this weekend. Anything else the, the listeners can check out from you in the next week or so? Yeah, Mike, you're gonna, I'll be where the action is, and I'll be in Florida leaving tomorrow, and um, I'm, I'm going to be down in um, going to be down for the Miami series and the Rays series, and of course uh, I'm going to fly into West Palm maybe tomorrow and, and maybe Monday scoot by the uh, scoot by the uh, Port St. Lucie, see if anything's happening there. My way down for the uh, two or three hour ride to Miami. And so I'll be uh, I'll be on top of the Mets for for the next week, and then um, I think I may be going to Toronto with the Yankees uh, in about two weeks. So that's going to be an exciting series too. So 
So I'll be all, I'll be all over the place in August, and then uh, and I also be and this is the best part of August, the, the final week. I'll be down to Jersey Shore. <laughs> you can't beat hey. that. <laughs> enjoy that, Kevin. You're the best. We always enjoy talking to you. Uh, keep up the good work, and let's do it again before the season's out. Alrighty. Anytime. Thanks. Should be a fun. Uh, we may even be talking in baseball in October. That's still going on, which will be fun. That's absolutely Kevin Kernan of the New York Post, at Where's Kernan on Twitter. Hey, you're going away in your hand-waving August, and Kevin Kernan's hand-waving the last week of August at the Jersey Shore, Joe. So you and Kevin have a, a lot in common. Very uh, very interesting. Hey, let's take a quick break. Joe and I will react, talk a little Yankees. Uh, like I said, uh, in the 11 o'clock hour, we hope to have Philip Bondi of the Daily News came out with a new book about the Pine Tar game. Uh, Yankees fans and uh, Royals fans probably remember that game pretty well. Uh, the George Brett Pine Tar Game, so an interesting book that uh, we want to chat with uh, Philip Bondi of the Daily News about. Uh, Joe and I will get into the uh, football a little bit later on in the 11 o'clock hour, but it's all baseball, and that's a good thing here in New York because it's been a while since uh, at this time of the year that we could dominate one of our shows with just baseball. You are listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono, taking you all the way up to noon. Listen to the show live on replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. We'll be right back. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. Mike Silva, Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdog. Give us a call. We're talking baseball. 646-716-8187. Kevin Kernan, we set the match, Joe. We played. And he went off. He was uh, on fire. I mean, listen, on a week like this, you have. I mean, I could go on for 30 minutes. There was so much we did not talk about. We did not talk about the Jay Bruce rumors and how that was playing along. We didn't talk about the fact that the Yankees, apparently offered Mateo in the Craig Krimble deal, and A.J. Preller right. said no, and then Preller said, all right, you want Kimbrel, uh, Arizona, give us Paul Goldschmidt for that. Um, so there was what so much going on. We and then it was a joke. Oh, it was a joke. But afterwards, it was a joke by A.J. Preller. Oh, I was only joking. Uh, I, think it was. I think it was a joke. Yeah. I think it was kind of yeah. like we're not making him available. And then we haven't talked about the Troy Tulowitzki trade. And what that, the immediate reaction was of Mets fans and Reyes now going to Colorado, what that means for his career and his availability to other teams beyond that. David Price going to Toronto, you know, Parra goes to the Orioles. There, I cannot recall a trade deadline where there were so many teams making big-time moves to kind of go for it. And maybe that's a product of two things. Obviously, the second wild card and also the product that there's no guarantee in a one-game playoff, so you better go win the division. And those combinations of those two, things, those two things have more teams in it and more teams willing to make big moves. And I can't recall, maybe you can, I cannot recall a deadline crazier than the one we just saw over the last week. I think teams are starting to realize with the new setup and what's been going on the last few years that you get in this tournament, you could win. 
And everybody's been holding assets for so long. And I think because of the change in front offices, you went from long-term baseball guys who had certain ways of doing business and they weren't going to change that were ingrained in them to now these younger, statistical-minded front offices across the league coming into play. And this is a new wave in the last decade. And they're new to the game still. It's almost in the infancy. So finally, they're starting to ingrain themselves in what, what being in the real world is, not the fantasy baseball world, not the academic world, not the blogosphere, and taking those ideas and those concepts and merging them with real-world business and real-world real world baseball. And I think they're realizing fans, unlike them, are not there to count assets. Fans are not there to feel good about farm systems. Although there's a group of fans that love and rather play fantasy GM mogul, fans go to the ballpark, they want to be entertained, they want to win. It's great to have the Shake Shack and Pat Lee, uh, Lafrito, whatever the Mets have. I I'm not going to City Field for a meal. I can go to a hell of a lot more places and cheaper and not travel as much for a meal. So I don't need to go to City well, Field for a meal. What? Well, I did have the $12 chicken cacciatore from Rayo's uh, last night. That's City Field? Yeah. Along with my 850 Brooklyn summer, summer ale. I, I listen. And, you know, it's, so, it's interesting. You know, if you went back a month or so and we had conversations with Dan Grossa from SiriusXM, we had Sal Licata on. And at that point, the Mets and Yankees were kind of in the same position. They were both, you know, right there, but kind of with the other teams, the Mets with the Nationals, and the Yankees really hadn't separated themselves. And everyone said they were confident that at the end of the day, the Yankees would make moves because that's what the Yankees do, and the Mets would not. So, and you have a complete role reversal. The Mets go out, they make the Uribe Johnson move, they make the nice Tyler Clippard addition, and then make the big move with Cespedes. And the Yankees, even after a day later, a day after they find out that Pineda's going on the DL and going to be out probably a month, they still don't make a move for a pitcher. And Brian Cashman said it. He's doubling down on what they have right now. And the bringing up Severino is lighting up AAA 7 and 0. And his next start that he makes will be for the New York Yankees, and we'll see how that will go. But these two teams right now are going about how to win baseball games in completely different ways, and then what they did at the trade deadline was completely different. The Yankees standing pat, the Mets kind of making moves they had to make, and the Yankees right now, they don't care if Chris Capuano gives up five runs in the first inning. They don't care. Nate Evaldi is 11-2. and two. 11 and 2 with an ERA of like four and a half. That's how good this Yankees offense is. Oh, 90 runs. Yeah, Nate Evaldi hasn't been good. Runs. Right. I'm just saying, this right. team right now, right now in a regular season format, the Yankees can withstand giving up three, four, five runs from their starters. That's how good their offense has been right now. And then the Mets are just saying, give me three runs. Just give me three runs a game. It's so, it's so interesting. These two teams are on completely different paths. And, and it's weird. I'm not yet, and you're not yet. What is this team capturing more of the imagination of the city? And yet, no one wants to tell them. It's like, Mike, they did two TV shows, which they are, at the exact same time, and everyone's watching the Mets live, and then when the season's over, people get the. And watch the Yankees. Wow, that was a series. I mean, that's kind of how it's going right now. The Mets have been a uh, a bit of a reality show, like Kevin Kernan said. 
You know who's been quietly very good for the Yankees? And he's not a full-time player anymore. I think he could probably give you a good 350 at-bats. Power. Obviously, no speed anymore. He's been... He's got it, you know, over since April when he had a horrible April, an OPS under 500. He's been over 800 since April, and um, again he's getting overshadowed by Teixeira, and he may very well Teixeira very well would be in the MVP conversation. I don't disagree with Kevin on that. Kevin Kern in the New York Post. We know what the year that A Rod had. Amazing that A Rod with Jeter out of the room is a different person. Amazing, isn't it? You think A-Rod's mm, doing this if mean, Jeter's still in the room? I mean, let's not forget, he did win multiple MVPs with Jeter in the room with the Yankees. Yeah. I just think <laughs> I mean, he's a, you know... You know, I mean, it's not like he can have I'm big saying. seasons. I mean, he's a different person, but he's also, he better person. be a different person after being suspended and pretty much having his baseball career flash before his eyes. So, you know... Even A-Rod, who as much as, you know, he is as, you know, the angel on one side of his shoulder and the devil on the other, if he didn't get it after last year, he was never going to get it. So maybe, I mean, maybe the there's been an opportunity this. for guys like Teixeira and A-Rod to, you know, and, and, and Kernan talked about their relationship, become more leaders, become more vocal, more comfortable than if they were, than if Jeter was there. But I'm not I sure. don't think the Yankees. I, I think the Yankees might revisit that Kimbrel trade. I don't know what waivers people are gonna, what players are gonna get through waivers. You have to be careful in today's day and age because if you put players on waivers and the other team claims them, you always run the risk of that team saying, "Okay, I don't want to pay him anymore. He's on you." And then you're like, "Oh, wait a minute. I put a claim in. I'm not ready. I don't. You know, what's my finances?" So there's a lot of money in the game, and not everybody's like the Mets who are constantly. You know, putting one bean from one side of the ledger to another side of the ledger. But you have to be careful. So players will get through waivers. It's not just about, oh, i got to block this guy. Now, there will be some gamesmanship. I think the Yankees are going to put Severino on the rotation. I haven't watched the kid play. I heard what Kernan said that scouts have said he's not ready. If you look at his peripherals, especially his strikeout rate, it went precipitously down since he went from AA to AAA. And I remember talking to Mark Melanson when he was in AAA with Scranton. The, 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 the guy that swings with the garbage in the dirt in double-A, that doesn't happen in triple-A. It just doesn't. In the game, there's a jump, and then there's the next jump in the big leagues. So just because the guy's got a 7-0 record, a 1.9 ERA in uh, Scranton, that doesn't mean you've got Matt Harvey on your hands right now. That doesn't always happen. But the Mets have seen, and what this city has seen, is an anomaly. And you're going to try to recreate it for years to come, it's not that easy to do that. So I think the Yankees will make a deal in August if Severino doesn't step up. And I even think they have to look at some kind of veteran arm because in a short series, do you trust Pineda now? Because he's been very good or very bad, Pineda. He's not a guaranteed good start anymore. Tanaka, okay, you want to, you have to trust somebody. Evaldi got 11 wins, but he's not pitching great. I mean, the peripheral suggests that. Uh, CeCe Zabathia stinks. Now, Adam Warren's a guy that I think belongs in rotation versus the bullpen. You've got a lot of – look, you've got, you got a bullpen that if you, you need to get – I know they're going to probably try to do what the 06 Mets did. Six innings out of, your, out of your starters, get to that bullpen every night in the postseason. Batances, Miller, um, you know, if, I don't know what they're going to do with Warren. Maybe Warren gets into that mix. You've got uh, – I mean, I, who did I, what did I say about three-way how Chase and Shreve I think was going to be a good – and important. He's great. He's been great. That's a good deal for the for, for the Yankees. So they're set up perfectly in that bullpen. 
Um, I think you got to really look at the rotation. I think Adam Warren's a guy. I mean, I know his innings limits and stuff like that. Put him in. Uh, but I think the Yankees are going to make a deal after the waiver deadline. I, I think they're going to continue to look, and I think that Kimball trade could be revised because I still think A.J. Preller doesn't know what the hell he's doing. I think he, A.J. Preller in San Diego is like a 13-year-old kid that's been let into the girls' locker room. He's running around making deals. He thinks it's fantasy baseball. I don't think he knows what he's doing. And by evidence of that stupid proposal for Goldschmidt in Arizona for Kimber. I, I, I think insane. that was his way of saying he was not available. I mean, I don't think that a GM is making that kind of an offer to another, to a fellow GM um, in, in, in a sincere manner. Um, but listen, with the Padres, I think ultimately what happened with them was he recognized that he was not going to be able to you know, trade Upton for what he wanted. He was not going to be able to trade Kimbrell for what he wanted. Plus, remember, Kimbrell's got some years on his contract. He's not in the same situation as Upton. So he felt, you know what, if I can't do a complete sell-off like the Tigers did, being somewhere doesn't do me any good. And I'd rather just kind of keep this team together and see what happens. Um, maybe we get an opportunity to re-sign Justin Upton at the end of the year. Maybe not and keep the rest of the core together and see what this team can do in the second half of the season. I mean, that's what he did. I mean, listen, this guy was praised in the offseason as to what he did, bringing in Will Myers and bringing in Matt Kemp and bringing in James Shields and Kimbrell and Upton. I mean, it was pretty impressive. Now, it hasn't gelled. It cost Bud Black his job. But, um, you know, I don't criticize him for making the call that says, you know what, if I'm not going to be able to get back the return I want for Upton, I'm not going to be a complete seller and just – kiss away the season, I might as well keep these guys together and see what this group can do and then revisit, you know, trying to re-sign Upton in the offseason and see what other additions they make. I think in the end is what is what he decided. Um, other teams, interesting moves. Hey, our pal that called up yesterday, last week, what was it, Lenny? Yes, Lenny Melnick. He was right about the Papelbon move. With Cole Hamels. And Cole Hamels. He said Cole Hamels is going to Texas, and he said Papelbon would go to the Nationals, and he was right on both accounts. Uh, the Texas Rangers, not as far off as everyone, I think, perceives them being right now from the postseason. Um, they still have a good offense, as they showed in the Yankee series. They get Hamels. I think he'll make his first start today uh, against a National League team, too, right? I think I think the first game they have is against a National League team, as luck would have it. Um, and then you have uh, Papelbon going in, and that's a weird situation, right? Papelbon going in, Drew Storen, who obviously has had his postseason troubles, but pitching elite from a closer standpoint for the Nationals this year, and Papelbon goes, takes less money in order to vest next year's contract and says he has to be the closer, and they demote Storm. So, and if you're a Met fan, you'd rather be facing Papelbon in the ninth inning than Storm because of the success they've had against Papelbon in the past and the familiarity they have with Papelbon with his days with the, with the Phillies. Also, Mike, did you see the comment that Papelbon said about chasing after Rivera? Like he wants to go after Moe's numbers. And our pal Joe Giglio, who was on the show last week, tweeted out the numbers at this age, and they're right there. Shocked me. Yeah, I did see that. I did see that. Absolutely. That. Uh, well, I mean, everybody has said that relievers are overrated. That you get that one inning and that, I mean, with Rivera, it was the postseason. And mm-hmm. and maybe it was a narrative, maybe it was perception that he just didn't blow any games. So um, anyway, the number six four six seven one six eight one eight seven. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. So Joe, listening to Kernan's conversation that didn't get published with uh, with the the um, uh, the Parnells and the Dudas saying how they want to take control of the division. 
Those are strong words, and those weren't published. I wonder if the Nationals had seen that, what they would have done. So, anyway, you're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We have a little bit of a historical segment coming up. Philip Bundy of the Daily News came out with a new book, The Pine Tar Game, and we're going to talk to him in just a minute. Um, of course, you're, we're taking you all the way up till noon. We're talking baseball. We're talking Jets. We're talking Giants later, early training camp. So stay with us. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back. It's a positive thing. You know, it wasn't a ground ball that went through my legs or a strikeout. It was something that I did good. I hit a home run off one of the toughest uh, relief pitchers in baseball. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's gone. And now the Royals have the one-run lead. George Brett has just homered, and Billy Martin and the Yankees want the bat. Well, if they call me out for using too much pine tar, I've never heard of that rule. Uh, I'll run out there and I'll kill one of those SOBs. And as soon as I said that, Tim McClellan turns around and starts looking for me in the dugout. They might be going to call George Brett out. Well, the Yankees win. He's out. Yes, sir. Brett is out. Look at, look at this. Brett is out. And He's demon mad. He is out and having to be forcibly restrained from hitting plate umpire Tim McClellan. And the Yankees have won the ball game four to three. Red is called out for using an illegal bat. Again, if it was Cleveland, would it would it have been that big a deal? I don't think so. But New York is New York. All right, some uh, highlights from the infamous game, the Pine Tar game. And joining us to talk about it came out with a new book, The Pine Tar Game. Philip Bondi of the Daily News. Philip, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. Good morning. How are you? Oh, pretty good. I'm glad to be on. Thanks a lot. So. Not many topics of one game, and really, one at-bat and one inning could lead to a book. Tell me a little, how did this come about? How did you get into this project? I know that you were, I think you were covering the game. Uh, it's not easy to fill a book on any topic, much less one game and one at-bat. Yeah, well, I did cover the game, and I did cover the court hearings uh, where the Yankees were trying not to resume this game, and I did cover the resumption. Uh, and and then about two years ago, George Brett came through New York. Uh, he uh, he he was the hitting coach with the Royals at the time for a few months before he got tired of traveling. And he uh, he talked about the Pine Tar game, and I wrote an article about it, and it kind of uh, rekindled all my memories of it. And I thought, I can't. I, this is a lot more than the 800 words that I got to write for the New York Daily News. This is a this this is about small market, big market. It's about it's about Ewing Kaufman, the sort of quiet, thoughtful Kansas City Royal owner, versus George Steinbrenner, the blustery, spontaneous money spender. It's about Billy Martin. It's about George Brett, and it's it's about all sorts of things you know that I that you can expand on. I mean. Roy Cohn, the famous communist hunting attorney, was the Yankee attorney trying to stall and, re- and avoid the resumption. Rush Limbaugh was, was the promotions director for the Kansas City Royals. So there's a whole lot of stuff to write about. Philip, when you were in the press box while this was happening, were the people around you and yourself aware what the Yankees were doing? I mean, you know, obviously we live in a uh, we lived in a world where there were cork bats, and I guess this had been called previously. But at what point do you recall, you know, 30 years ago, where you actually said, "This is what the Yankees are trying to do here," uh, trying to look at how much pine tar he has on Brett's bat. 
it, my memory is that we were very confused until McClellan laid down the bat against the uh, home against home plate. At which point, it became obvious he was measuring the pine tar on the bat. And of course, we didn't know we didn't know the rules specifically, uh, and neither did the umpires because the rules weren't very specific. That was the problem. But back then, you know, every time the Yankees and Royals played, it seemed. They had to rewrite the rule book. I mean, they faced each other four times in five years in the American League Championship Series. And one rule that changed was that uh, after Hal McRae barreled into Willie Randolph, that you can't barrel into the second baseman like that. Another rule when Chris Chambliss hit his series-winning homer in 1976, and he tried to round the bases, and there were no bases left because the Yankee Stadium fans took it away. Well, they put in a rule that said if there are no bases left, you don't have to you don't have to step on them. So it always seemed, and then they changed the pine tar rule to say specifically. You just remove the bat. The batter is not called out. So it just seemed like every time these two teams played, something bizarre was happening. I played the soundbite of George Brett's press conference in Kansas City uh, about the 30th anniversary, and he says, you know what, if this, wasn't, if this was Cleveland and not New York, maybe this wouldn't have been that big of a deal. How much did New York and also George Brett, I mean, I don't know if people realize 30 years later, he is arguably the best hitter of that generation. So how much did it be, how much was it the fact that it was this player and also, you know, the Yankees that kind of has kept this story going and it's still relevant 30 years later? Well, absolutely a big, big part of it. I was in Kansas City yesterday and the day before and, and George Brett actually showed up to one of the book events and he, he liked the, he liked the book a lot. Uh, and, but he talked about his, the rivalry with the Yankees. Uh, he said when he was, you know, he's been with the Royals in one capacity or the other ever since. And he said that even during their drought years, when they were losing, had losing seasons 19 years in a row, he would go in before the Yankee series and he would tell the players, he would say, I don't care if this season ends up six wins and 156 losses, those six wins better be against the Yankees. <laughs> so that's, that's how deep his hatred for that NY symbol still is to this day. Uh, I was glad that he liked the book. He, there was one point of contention he had, and it's an interesting one, and readers can sort of decide on their own. He still claims that he didn't know the bat he had was illegally pine-tarred, um, on, but I talked to the pu longtime public relations director of the Kansas City Royals, a guy by the name of Dean Vogelar, and Vogelar said, I probably remember this better than George does, but back in a series against Toronto, right before they, the Royals played the Yankees, he turned to me at the batting cage and said, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to get away with this bat. So you can either believe George or... Uh, or Dean Vogler. One thing is for sure, though, that he didn't know that about the possible consequences of swinging his messy bat. And he was just a bat slob. That's all there was to it. His bat was just covered with pine tar from massaging it. That's all. Philip Bondi of the Daily News, uh, author of The Pine Tar Game uh, from Scribner. He's uh, chatting a little bit about this, uh, this very interesting moment in baseball history and New York history. So, Philip, what what after that you have a 25 day period you like you said there's courts and the Yankees and and Steinbrenner is trying to dig up uh, uh dirt on uh on McFall and it's it's so Steinbrenner late 70s early Yankees esque uh, <laughs> at the end at the end the Royals win the game so uh, could you give I don't want to give away the whole book for those who may All not right. know 
But could you give an idea of, like, you know, what was the thesis of why this turned out the way it turned out? Well, I mean, McPhail just ruled in the spirit of the game is what he said. And, and I think it, he did it correctly because pine tar clearly had no influence on the direction or distance of the baseball. And in addition to that, Brett hit, the, Brett hit Goose Gossage's pitch in a place high up on the barrel where there was no pine tar. It was a silly rule, you know, put into effect for sanitary purposes or for actually economic purposes because a couple of skin flint owners didn't want to keep replacing the balls after, after uh, foul tips, basically. That was the reason for the rule in the first place. But my favorite moment, I think, came in that resumption that you're talking about 25 days later. I mean, Billy Martin was furious that this was going on, and he, uh, he made a farce of it as, as much as he could. He, he put Ron Guidry in center field. He put Don Mattingly at second base. And, he, uh, and then he appealed immediately. He said that George Brett, 25 days earlier, had not stepped on first or second base when he rounded the bases on his home run. And he, he was figuring, he figured, you know, in, it, actually it was a logical, smart thing to do because he figured this new umpiring crew that was there at that day was not there when George Brett hit the home run. Therefore, they could not attest to the fact that George Brett touched first or second base. But there was a little genius by the name of uh, Bob Fischel in the American League office who had worked for some real scoundrels in his day for Bill Veck and for uh, George Steinbrenner. And he actually foresaw this moment. And so out of the pocket of one of the new umpires, Dave Phillips, comes an affidavit from the previous umpiring crew stating that George Brett had, in fact, touched all the bases. I thought that was sort of the height of lunacy and my favorite moment of the whole thing. Weekend Watchdogs, Joe Bono, Mike Silva chatting with Flip Bondi about the Pytar game. His new book is out. And um, I think Mattingly is actually the last left-handed player to still play the middle infield since that game. Also, I, I guess Brett was thrown out of the game. So where was he when the game resumed all those yeah, days he later? didn't. The, Roy, the Royals didn't know whether or not to go into New York or to Baltimore where their next series was going to start because they weren't sure until the last minute that this game was, in fact, going to be resumed. The Yankees had found a sympathetic judge in the Bronx who actually ruled that, yes, it was too much of a risk for the spectators, security-wise, to open the stadium and resume this game, which was, of course, nonsense. Only about 1,500 fans showed up. But um, So they, it wasn't until later in the day in a Manhattan appellate court that a judge finally ruled that uh, this game should, in fact, take this resumption should take place. So the Royals did take a chance. They did fly into New York. They bust to the Bronx. But George Brett had, as he says, I was thrown out of that game for some reason or another. <laughs> and, and so he, he knew he wasn't going to play in it. So he just watched the game on a, on a TV in a, in a restaurant near Newark Airport and uh, was not part of the whole farce. Now, I and know that I you also, look at the finals. I'm sorry, Joe, just one thing here. I know that uh, you look at the standings, um, and the Royals are 20 games back at the end of the year, Yankees 7, even though they won 91 games. The league, it was a lot closer then. Did this have an impact at all on these teams as they made their way down the stretch as you were late July at that point? Well, absolutely had an impact on the Yankees. They re it really took the heart out of the Yankees. They, they were virtually tied for first when this, uh, when this game started 
began in, uh, in July. And they kind of fell apart as this, and Billy Martin really fell apart. I was covering him, and it wasn't pretty. I mean, he was unraveling on a daily basis, and the odor of alcohol was becoming more and more apparent. He soon got suspended for calling a different umpire a stoned liar. It, it went on and on, and they just went down the tubes, basically, and Martin was leading them down there. The Royals, I don't think it really had much of an impact one way or another. Uh, they had a, the Royals had a very atypical year for such a model franchise. Uh, they were struggling with a cocaine scandal in the clubhouse. Different type of drug back then was the, the, the drug of scandal. Uh, and they got their act together quickly enough and two years later won a championship. But at, that year was not a good year for either the Royals or the Yankees. Well, last question for me. What about the history of this bat? Because I believe, you know, Gaylord Perry was there as well, and he tried to take the bat after it was in the possession of the umpires. There's this flurry of activity in the, yank, in the uh, dugout uh, following this happening. So what happened to the bat immediacy after uh, Brett was called out and thrown out of the game? To where is it, where is it now? Well, it's interesting because it was George Brett's favorite bat ever. It was a what they call a seven grainer. Uh, most bats are 13, 14 grains, and they're weaker. The fewer the grains in the ash of a tree, the, the better, the stronger the wood, the stronger the bat. So he had used this bat for more than a month beforehand, which is why it was becoming pine tarred so high. And then Gaylord Perry grabs it from the ump, you know, before, after the umpire's measured, he kind of grabs it and tries to escape with it down the tunnel. They caught the, he hands it to somebody else. They run it down. But sure enough, the umpires retrieve it. They send it to the American League office. The American League office eventually sends it back to Brett, and he continues to use it because uh, it's his favorite bat. And Perry, who is a bit more entrepreneurial than Brett, turns to Brett and says, uh, you know, that bat's worth a lot of money, and if it cracks, it's not worth a penny. So Brett listened to him and stopped using it, sold it to a uh, collector, Barry Halper, in New York City, uh, Halper, and then and then Brett started to figure, I have enough money, this is a historic bat. He buys it back from Halper for the same amount of money, $25,000, plus a bat that he hit three home runs against the Yankees with. Um, and then now the bat sits in uh, Cooperstown, where it's on loan. It's a, it's a little glass case, the only representative of the Royals. The Yankees practically own the Hall of Fame, but the Royals just have one glass case, and in that glass case are uh, Frank White's glove and and uh, George Brett's bat. Unbelievable. So, uh, Philip, I know you're going to be at uh, the August 9th uh, event, Yogi Berra Museum in Montclair, New Jersey. Let the listeners know anything to do with the book, where they can get it, events. Uh, we really appreciate your time this morning, so I want to give you a, a chance to let uh, the listeners know what's going on with this. No, it's, you know, it's the usual thing. You can get it uh, online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or even better, an independent bookstore, because that's a tough business. These, that's as tough a business as uh, newspapers yep. these days. So mm -hmm. anything, anything listeners can do to support your independent bookstore, even if it means spending four extra dollars more than you get it online, <laughs> would be nice. Um, I am at the Yogi Berra Museum, and I'm on a lot of radio interviews. <laughs> so, but that, that's about it in terms of uh, events right now. I just, like I said, I just got back from Kansas City where they treated me like a king. They loved, they loved this game, and they loved this book because in the end, the Royals win. <laughs> that, 
They, get, they lose in the long run, but in the end they win and they beat the Yankees. Well. Yeah, and, and the great thing – oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just no, going to say the ironic thing is when I started this book, the Royals were on their way to the 19th straight losing season. The Yankees were struggling, and now it looks like they could play each other right. in the American League Championship Series again. And I bet you you're going to get more radio interviews, and this thing is going to be replayed during a championship series. You have to think well, that, that could happen. You should be rooting for that. You should I, be rooting I, for that. That would be fun. That would be I, fun. It's been a long time uh, since those two teams met. Yes, it has. And, uh, it's, and you know, like I say, it's very serendipitous because they were struggling when I started this thing. So for once, I got lucky. <laughs> there you go. Well, listen, I, I, I enjoy your work. I've read many of your books. You were very generous with your time on a Saturday morning. Good luck with this, and uh, we'll catch up again, okay? Thanks, guys. I really do appreciate it. Philip Bondi, New York Daily News. The, you know, he used to write the column, Joe, the Bleacher Creature column. Of course. No, without a question. I know I've been a longtime uh, reader of uh, Flip Bondi. And, you know, um, you know, for me, I made that you know, little audio prelude into the interview. When I was at Fordham, we did a 100th anniversary of the Yankees in 2003, 1903 to 2003. And a bunch of us all helped out with the production. And I was in charge of creating the segment for the Pintar game. So I had to listen back on all these audio and all of these interviews from Yankee players and Royal players, and I had to do the segment for that. So it was nice this morning to kind of revisit that a little bit with some new audio sprinkled in since, you know, uh, Brett's been doing interviews uh, both in New York and in Kansas City around the 30th anniversary. I think also, and I wanted to ask Flip this question, but I, it kind of escaped my mind until we were about wrapping up, about what was considered cheating back then and cheating now, oh, really? right? So like pine tar and the cork bass and, you know, Gaylord Perry and all that kind of stuff and, and how that stuff happened. And, and, you know, and even in Brett, in one of the interviews he did recently talked about, you know, I, yeah, pine tar, I didn't know that rule. He goes like, I never corked my back, but he goes, there were a lot of guys that used to cork their back back then. Oh, really? I know that. I mean, remember Whitey Herzog used to choose Howard Johnson of Hojo corking his back? And, and, and any time Hojo had a home run. Well, if you listen to Keith, I think Keith Hernandez slipped a few years ago and admitted that Hojo did. Hojo, and I had Hojo on my, my, my podcast, and I tried to get that out of him. He won't bite on that. Hojo will not bite. On a cork remember, bat. Uh, remember Sammy Sosa in 2003 yep. had the cork bat. With the Super Bowl, right, the Super Bowl. So Albert Bell. The interesting, the baseball, and we saw it a little this week with some of the stuff that happened with the Mets and Sandy's lecture and Terry's near meltdown during the postgame uh, on Wednesday. Baseball in the late 70s, early 80s, between the A's and Vec and Steinbrenner, what he pulled on Old Timers Day, rehiring Billy Martin, and then this thing and the stories you're hearing uh, uh, Philip Bondi talk about with 25 days and the lawsuits and the affidavits and pine tar, which is such a, such a silly thing. I mean, baseball has a lot of dumb stuff that they've done over the years, dumb rules, dumb thought processes. And I think over the last 15, 20 years because of, and I'm not knocking this because every business progresses, it is such a big business. It's been Wall Streetized. You have these, these Ivy Leaguers coming in. It's been sanitized where it's about assets and trades. And that, look, that is the foundation of the business. That is important. That has to be part of it. But I feel, Joe, that some of this character you lose. And you, could you imagine in today's game, with the way it is, what happened and what Philip Bondi described with the Pintar playing out, not only on social media, playing out at all. We have replay. 
what would they do? They go to the replay booth on this? Which, by the way, the ums last night, the Met game, they blew that hit by pitch. I don't know if you saw the replay. Oh, I think they that blew led- the hit by pitch. I think Clifford's 3-2 pitch on the 12th pitch of the at-bats, uh, worth was low. <laughs> so that was definitely low. And Harper's was maybe outside. And take a walk, Harper. Not a, not, I'm not a Bruce, Bryce Harper. Fan. I know you're not a. I know you're not a Brett Harper fan. And his Bryce ineptitude Harper, Bryce against Harper. Bryce Harper. Right. And his ineptitude right. against the the Mets right now is astounding. I can't remember the Mets shutting down a rival superstar player like they're doing. Usually it's the opposite. Usually it's the Chipper Jones of the world and guys like that that dominate whenever they see them. Obviously, everyone remembers what. Ryan Howard and Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins have always done to the Mets. Um, so it's very unusual for the Mets pitching to dominate Brett Harper in the way that they have. You just think that he soon enough will kind of break out and, and, and hit a big-time home run. I mean, Robles versus Harper in the um, 11th inning, I mean, I think no one would have been surprised if that would have been deposited into the right center field, uh, you know, right center field bullpen, but uh, ultimately it was not. He struck out. And uh, the Mets held on for that for that win, but I, I enjoyed that spot with uh, with Flip. That I mean, like you said, to be able to do an entire book on really one incident in one game, but there's a ton of backstory and a ton of characters, um, so it should be a good read. I mean, he's done. He did a uh, uh, he did a book on the NBA in the '84 draft. Uh, I believe he did a book on the Bleacher Creatures. Uh, so he's done quite a few books. And this one, Joe, that would be fun. Think about this: you have Yankees Royals ALCS, and you have Mets Dodgers. Dodgers. Mets can't beat the Dodgers in a seven-game series, though. Yankees can beat the Royals. I don't think the Mets can beat the Dodgers in a seven-game series. Well, Mets Kershaw, Dodgers, and, Mets Giants, Mets Cardinals. I mean, Kershaw, all those matches are great. Nah, they've I've been the Cardinals thing. I kind of want to move past that. I think the Dodgers has been a long time, and I think the interesting part about that is that there's a lot of historical points of view. You can go back to 88 with the Mets and Dodgers. You're going to have still these old farts that live in Brooklyn that can't get over the Dodgers leaving and the influx of, uh, of Dodger uh, uh, fans into the stadium. With the Yankees and Royals, it's truly small market versus big market, and there's so much history back in the late 70s that I think the modern fan who has been around never considers the Royals anything of a, uh, of a model franchise like Fulbani said, but they were. I mean, Whitey Herzog was their manager, and he helped uh, build that team up when they were a laughing stock. Um, the late 70s Royals just couldn't get over the hump against the Yankees. They win the World Series in 85, which was a bit of a, of a lucky thing because they, they weren't as good as maybe they were in the late 70s. So they, they, almost, they almost did. Here's the other team in all this, that when you look at the standings back then, and they always kind of, and they didn't finish, they finished nine games out that year, but they were tough. The Toronto Blue Jays all throughout the 80s had good teams. And you don't think of that team. You think of 92, 93, and then obviously that's another team now. They're, um, you know, that, that might make the playoffs if they get hot and all these moves work out. So. And they're, uh, they're an exciting team in that lineup right now. When people look at that leadoff, you know, Encarnacion, Joe, you know, Jose Bartista, um, Josh Donaldson, uh, Navarre, you know, you know, these get, they have you know, a stacked lineup. And with David Price, that lineup plus one elite starter, if you get to a five-game series, 
Um, all of a sudden, they become very, very dangerous, and they made the move. They are chip to the center the a- table team. Well, listen, they people were looking at the, the AL East standings, though, with them and say, oh, they're seven games back. Why are they doing this? Well, remember, when they made this move, who was the second wild card? The Minnesota Twins? So if you're the oh, Blue the wild Jays, you're saying, hey, we got to – yeah, we got to – can we overtake the Minnesota Twins to get ourselves in the tournament and have David Price pitch a one-game playoff, and we'll see what our bats do in the postseason? Uh, that'd be an exciting team to be back in the playoffs, too. Listen, two straight championships are one of the best lineups in baseball history as far as, you know, I've ever seen. You know, the 92-93 Blue Jays with all the Hall of Famers they had in that Tough lineup. Uh, Tough bullpen. You know, to never be, not, they haven't been in the, haven't been in the postseason Hayes. since. They haven't been in the postseason yep. since, 22 years. You know, Mets fans, right. you know, feel sorry about themselves, but uh, you took 22 yeah, years the for the Blue Jays without. The Mets have not nearly been the least successful team in, in baseball over the last 20 years or so. Uh, 646-716-8187 is the number. Our uh, buddy who uh, likes to chime in, Drew from Bayshore, is on the line. Drew, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. Mm-hmm. Good morning, guys. There's so many topics I just uh, I wanted to talk about. I mean, I uh, listened to Flip Bondi's interview. I mean, growing up uh, in the same generation as I think all three of us, you know, we know all these uh, Yankee fans and, and the rivalries they associate with. But, I, like, you know, anybody that's a baseball fan knows about the Royals and some of those older um, uh, matchups from, like, the 70s and, and late 70s and everything. Like, my dad would tell me, like, oh, they were the rivals. I would, uh, I couldn't believe them because I'm looking at it year over year of, like, 100 losses from the Royals. It was hard to believe. But uh, definitely a great interview by Flip. Um I have had so many emotional turns thanks to the New mm-hmm. York Mets in the last couple of days. I went from, you know, uh, watching this loss after having a 7-1 lead to just saying, you know what, they shouldn't be buyers, they should be sellers. Uh, I, 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 wanted the, <laughs> I wanted the season to be over. I had enough, and you can see my Twitter feed. I, I really lost my mind after that loss. It was really troublesome. And then... The Wilma, the Wilma Flores issue, and then they get the guy I wanted the whole time, which is the owner Cespedes. However, um, I think the key for that is going to be will they be able to bring him back and resign him. Um, I think he fits pretty well in the lineup, middle of the order. Uh, plays, I think he could play don't hold your breath center. Nick and I were talking about he's got a strange contract. The idea that the Mets are going to blow him out with a deal that's going to make him sign in the first five days. Um, I know. Is high, I, I don't know. Like I mean, Rock Nation, if you've read, have you read Sandy Alderson's book, Joe? The baseball match? It's not his book, but yes, I have not read it. I haven't read it either. You know, Rock, Rock Nation really tried, and Jay-Z, and, 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 uh, and his, uh, you know, he's not doing the mission. He's got people working for him, but... Um, uh, Brody Van uh, Wagen, is that his was uh, working for? I'm trying to remember the guy's name. But they were very serious about pushing Cano to the Mets. The Mets could not get the deal done. And Sandy was serious. I mean, Rock Nation was not using the Mets, I think, to scare. Maybe they were to scare the Yankees. They were going to push him there. And all I can say is this. Cano wound up getting a deal from the Mariners who came and blew them away. But that wasn't the deal that was on the table initially. They weren't looking for $300 million. Um, it became a $200 million uh, stampede. Maybe, and this is pie in the sky because the Mets have yet to prove they could take on more payroll. They have not <laughs> during this process because they've shifted accounting practices. That's the, the dirty little secret that most general fans won't know. If the Mets go out and this guy hits and he dra- drags him to the playoffs, it's going to be really hard to let him walk, right-handed power, 
The thing yeah. is, can you afford a $25 million a year player? You think, let me ask you something. And, David Wright. I've posed this question a few times to some of the uh, insiders on, on Twitter and never got a response. I mean, realistically, <laughs> let's say it continues out the season to the projections of, uh, based on, on where they are now. So you're looking probably, you just probably will get that 30 home runs and 100 RBIs and looking at his past performances. I mean, what do you think? What type of contract is he going to get? He's going to be 30 years old already. Do you think he's going to get a seven-year deal, or do you think it's going to be five at a hundred? Like, what do you guys think? I mean, and I think the Mets will get I, like I five at a hundred. I, I really do. I mean, I, I mean, look what look look what Pablo Sandoval got on yeah, the market last year. I mean, a guy who's a subpar defensive player. That is so true. I know he came off another you know big-time playoff performance with the Giants, but you look at some of these other deals too. I think he's going to get $20 million right around there, if not more, in six, seven years. You're looking at six, seven years, $120, $140 million. I mean, I don't know. I mean, and it's probably, I mean, you know, and then again, that's Power probably is at more a premium. equipped. And it's probably, probably more equipped to be with an AL team so that at 34, 35, 36, he can be a DH and not be an everyday player right. in the outfield. So a lot of reasons why maybe a National League team doesn't make sense for him as well. I tell you what, contract-wise, is the only reason why I was more open to the Jay Bruce deal. Because when you looked at Bruce's contract, it was manageable next year, and then the team option for 2017 was only $13 million, and the Mets are playing, paying Kadire $12.5 million next year. So if Kadire goes yeah. off the books in 2017, you pick up Jay Bruce's option if he performed well. If he performed well you know, you would be able to sign him and keep him for one more year. So you looked at two and a half years of Jay Bruce for Zach Wheeler. I was okay with that. And he really, I know you look at Bruce three years, three, four years. It was clumsy. Hmm? Where we, you had Bruce, Granderson, Conforto. We haven't even mentioned yeah. Conforto on this whole thing. No, but I now, think we're in the same you, type of situation. Conforto's probably going to go down. I mean, now moving forward, yeah, I guess so. Well, you, you just have to make But Granderson's not but a Granderson's center fielder, not Joe. Forever. Do you guys don't think want that's just a place Are you worried about yeah. next year? If you're worried about that next year, though, Mike, you're worried about anyone that's on the free agent market because there isn't a center fielder that's going to no. be able to come in. That was good. Now, he, when he came up, uh, I'm talking about Cespedes now, uh, he came up and he was Conforto. playing in center field. Do you think that's realistic? Um, uh, no, based on, I mean, I was told he was field, a bad outfielder. And you could keep, and you could keep Conforto up and left. I mean, I don't think he's that bad of an outfielder, especially defensively in the corner. No. He has no, a decent arm. No. Not a, not, a, uh, not a center fielder, though, in my opinion. Thanks for the call, Drew. Look, if you have, Joe, let me, and again, we're playing way ahead and, and maybe pie in the sky with, with Suspettis. Because there's also, look, let's see how he fits in. We've heard some issues with him in the clubhouse there. You know, he could be, he's not your typical Sandy Olsen offensive player. He doesn't walk a lot. He's a power hitter. You have Suspettis in left, Lagaris in center, Granderson in right, Duda at first. Um, you have right at third. I'm going next year now. You don't have a second baseman because Murphy's out. Uh, he's you know, a right. agent. You have Darno behind the plate. So you got Herrera, Tejada right now that are, are up the middle. Um, you know, you can live with Lagaris in center because he made a nice catch last night. Big catch, by the way. Very nice. Uh, Lagaris. Um, you can live with Lagaris in center and maybe Tejada at short if at second you get something or what you think you could get out of Dilson Herrera, who's been very young, but disappointing. 
Yeah, since his, since his big league debut. I mean, in short, Mike, what you're saying is the Mets are going to be in the exact same situation next year unless they're able to bring in another bat. Because if you don't know what the situation is going to be with Wright and you don't believe Flores could be a shortstop, so now you're either saying he's your second baseman day-to-day or you go Herrera. Murphy, who, listen, has his faults, but he's a uh, player that, I mean, even last night, he starts the game at first base, he goes to third base, he could play second. Um, if he's not around, you're going to lose a quality bat in your lineup. So where is this team getting offense in 2016 um, if they don't go out there and sign a Justin Upton-type player or re-sign Cespedes in the offseason? It can almost be a more daunting task than even this year was in terms of lineup. Right. you got $21 million coming off the books. you got Cologne. you got Murphy's eight. Uh, you probably are not going to have to pay. I don't know, you know, Mejia is still on the team, but you could release him and pay him nothing. But if you want to keep him on the team, go to arbitration. I believe he's arbitration eligible. And then he's not going to get paid half of that money that you give him yeah. anyway. So you probably get him about $20 bucks. The problem is, like you said, Kadir gets a raise. So you eat into that. Harvey's got arbitration. He's going to get – so most of that money already is going to be sucked up by Kadir raise. Harvey going on. Harvey's not going to make seven hundred thousand dollars in arbitration like he is this year. So you just don't have you don't have the ability to go to twenty five million dollars on Suspetas for a five year contract or more in the same payroll stratosphere they are now. Plus, you're looking down the road. You have to project the Grom is going to be arbitration eligible at some point. Darno is going to be eligible for arbitration at some point. So these guys making six hundred seven hundred thousand dollars contributing at multi-million dollar levels, that's going away. And you still have the right contract. Um, I mean, look, you, you got, got Granderson. Yeah, you got Granderson coming off that. the books another couple of years. But, but again, yeah. these are some plays. Some of these guys are guys that have actually been productive hitters for you in Granderson and Murphy. So the fact that they're coming off the books, who are you replacing them with? And listen, I was having this conversation with the people I was watching the game with last night. Big Mets fans, all of uh, all cut from the same cloth. My younger brother, Nick, his good friend, Keith, and Keith's younger brother, Ian. And we were all saying the same thing. He goes, the Mets are the only franchise, only owners. These people are businessmen that think this team, the fans need to pack the ballpark and have 45,000 people a night for them to actually spend money. That's like the equivalent of a restaurant saying, we're going to serve like crap food until people come. And then when people come, then we'll actually serve you guys a nice menu. I mean, that's what they're trying to do this backwards. And unfortunately, that's why this year is so important. Because if they're able to make it into the postseason, create some memories, create some excitement. Know what? That means season ticket holders are up, all that kind of stuff. And know what? Maybe they open up. Maybe they say, you know what? We can go into the 120 range because the season ticket base is so much higher. We know we're going to recoup that money. And we made some playoff gains. That's, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Right. And, I mean, maybe Upton, was, I mean, there'll be other power options at that point. Uh, certainly this conversation will happen again. And God forbid they win the World Series, the fans will have a revolt, but that might change the dynamic completely. We're putting way cart before the horse. The whole thing. <laughs> a little bit. We, we, yeah. talked, we almost talked about this, but then we had the Philip Bonney interview. I was very intrigued by Kevin Kernan's comments about the Mets targeting this series because it aligns perfectly what I've been saying and they have Duda and Parnell and they could be just telling Kevin what he wants to hear I don't know 
I have not yet seen this team step up in a big spot. So they can say all they want. They, they want to take control of this division. Certainly they'll put themselves eye-to-eye eye with the Nationals over the last seven or eight weeks if they sweep this. And they'll still be right there if they just take one out of the next two. I like to hear that. Um, but now you've got to execute, and now you've got to go out there. Um, they've not yet shown that they can do that, even against the Nationals. The last time they had a chance early to make a statement, they lost mm-hmm. from New York to Washington. They lost in Washington last year, even though they should have won the series. Uh, they always seem to find a way to lose. And last night was a perfect example. When the Mets played the Nationals, even before the Nationals became a good team, it's always something that happens. And you see the base hit by Escobar, which was nothing more. And I criticized Collins a lot. I was fine with what he did leaving Harvey in. Harvey made the worst possible location on that pitch. He put it right where Escobar uh, uh, could go down and get it, no matter how hard it is. He needed to maybe elevate that a little bit so he can miss his bat. So I can't criticize him. But I mean, when you had that hit yesterday, you were like, oh, here we go. The Nationals are going to come back. You were just waiting for the shoe to drop. You were waiting for the roof to cave in. And that's the why crowd was, so was good stressed. last night, right? The crowd, crowd was really was good, good last night. There was absolutely a buzz. I mean, the crowd was standing up and chanting on two strikes. I mean, obviously, Harvey had the perfect game going. Uh, and then on the Escobar bat, everyone stood up, was chanting Harvey. It was loud. And then, obviously, he puts it in the center field for the base hit. Um, and as a Met fan, you knew the way they were going to win that game was going to be a home run because they can't put together hits. They had five hits for the longest time. Tejada had a couple base hits, but neither team had a National base hit bullpen, inning on. National's bullpen tough. I mean, they and they didn't even use Thorin or Papelbon. And listen right. how important right. last night's game was. The Mets win last night. You got DeGrom going tonight. But remember, Clifford's not going to be available. You're looking at maybe playing Vermilia uh, for the third straight day, which included a, a game where he had to wait 45 minutes and come back out. He pitched over an inning yesterday. I mean, right now it's DeGrom and pretty much Bobby Parnell is the only guy that got a day off. And Parnell, and, and, and this now is it's why the Mets. The Mets need to see if they can get an arm through uh, waivers. And why is Bobby it Logan correct? Well, let's see what they did. Was suspended is on the roster today? I haven't seen. Have you seen any roster roster moves yet today? I haven't, you know, checked the. Uh, Listen, I think the, the easiest roster up. move, even though I hate it, is that Conforto is going to go back down because he's not going to get at bats here over the month of August, and we'll see him in September when the season ends for Triple I agree. Unless unless another injury happens. Um, but you know, which means Eric Campbell's somehow still going to be on this roster. But Logan Verrett pitched oh, very, need, very well. You need an infielder. You need down. an infielder, Joe. You never know what happens. You need an infielder there. I mean, he's a backup, and I'm with you. Hey, here's a report: 10:01 a.m. report. Rehab games near for David Wright. Here's the problem, though. I think Juan Uribe is as good, if not a better option, the rest of the year than David Wright. I don't know. I can't count on David Wright. I am not analyzing the Mets and their chances with David Wright even in the equation. Whatever David Wright gives you is a bonus. Go look at Don Mattingly, 1990, 1991, 1992. Um, you're pretty much looking at a guy that may be an 8, 9, 10 home run guy, solid third baseman. You're looking at a guy making $20 million that maybe won your rebate the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Not $20 million worth, and that's where this becomes a problem. And he's already given the Wilpons a freebie with the interest-free on the contract. I don't think David Wright's going to take any money like a like a Eli Manning or a Tom Brady. Say, hey, let me restructure my contract to help you guys out after I've basically given you an interest-free loan. Another before, loan. To the- yeah. Before we take a break, and you know, I know we're going to spend the last few minutes on, on some football stuff, 
Um, do you think the Yankees sweat at all between now and the end of the year? Six games right now on the Orioles and the Blue Jays. Is there no. any period of time? Is there any series that occurs, September series, where you know the lead is down to two games, three games, or do you think they're just going to maintain this four, five, six game lead the rest of the way, or even expand upon it? I can see it getting tighter right now. It's getting well. Right now, here's what I'll say. Let me get the. Uh... Can I get the Yankees schedule up over here? I'm trying to get the Yankees schedule up over here. Hold on. Um, the series, and I'm going to bring the Yankees up right now. And I'm a little unprepared for this. I, I do know three games on the schedule because I may have to go to Toronto for work in September. And the guy I'm going with is like, oh, so you know, what days would be good for you? I went right to this calendar and I said, uh, September uh, you know, 2021 and 22 would be good for me. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Yankees, Blue Jays. Let's go. Well, Let's do it. Eight, seven, eight, eight. No, by next week, 8-8. Eight, because eight. They're, they're playing the White Sox. The White Sox stink. The Red Sox stink. Let's see how the Blue Jays transpire. I think next weekend, that might show you whether the Blue Jays can move into the mix. I don't believe in the Orioles right now. And uh, let's see where they are next week, and I'll answer that. Right now, I'm going to say no. I think the wild card, and then look, in a short series, anybody can beat them. I'm not saying that they're they're invincible, but I think the division. I said this last week. I think the division's pretty much sewn up. One last thing before we take a break, go to football. John Heyman wrote about Gerardo Parra, the Milwaukee Brewers outfielder that went to the Orioles. That one, and he wouldn't name it. One team actually asked the Brewers to pick up salary on Parra's six million dollar contract. Let me take a guess who that was that did that. <laughs> did that. You want to spin the wheel on that one? I got 12. I think he's got 12 games left with the Blue Jays. Yeah. It's a lot of games. I think they're, just, I think they're better than the Blue Jays. Though. Here it is. Here's the, only, here's the only – if I'm a Yankee fan, this is the spot in the calendar that I'm going. There's two spots of the calendar. September 7th through the 13th, back-to-back series, Orioles, Blue Jays, and then – 18th to the 23rd back-to-back series at the Mets at the Blue Jays. Oh boy, would it, would it be fun for either side to knock the other side into a bad spot in the playoff race? That's gonna, you know what? We've said the it Subway be series has lacked juice. Look, the, the the Subway series has lacked the juice for a while, but um, that might not be the case if they have some serious, meaningful games in September. Anyway. Let's take a break. Uh, we're going to round out the show with some early, I mean literally early, training camp comments on both the Giants and the Jets. I think next week would be appropriate, Joe, for us to start delving into the start of the football season. Uh, some interesting news out of Jets camp. Not good news. Some good news, but a lot of not so good news. And obviously, JPP's hand has shown up, has reappeared. Well, that even the, the Giants heavily the bandaged claw, the claw. Uh, even the Giants were in the dark all this time. So he, they're, they're seeing the claw or the paw for the first time, just like the rest of us. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono. The number to call in is 646-716-8187. Taking you all the way up till noon and listen to us live on replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. We'll be back with the final segment, some football talk, right after this. Danny Olsen better stop lawyering people because I'm tired of the responses. You know what? He, you know what, either you demand excellence or you don't. Oh, we, you know, I said we were 90 wins as a goal, but you know what, it was really just something to strike for. You know what, Sandy, I'm not on trial here, okay? Stop. This 
team is dead and you've taken a good opportunity with some good young pitching and you're pitching it away, have hope. You know, it's like 1984. Oh, really? Stop with the amazing and believe. And you know what? You want to live in the amazing and believe world? That's fine. You're going to sit with you and the 5,000 other desperados. Look at behind Collins. Which, let me tell you something. Did Terry Collins inspire you? Even at the post-game conference yesterday, you sounded like an idiot. They could not have picked a worse candidate out of all the people they interviewed back in 2010. You could not. I could have asked my dog to go and drop his ball in a bucket, and this four bucket, pick a bucket, and that guy's the manager of the Mets. My dog would have probably picked a better manager than Sandy Alderson. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. You know, I know I need to do some more new promos. I've been lacking. Lots but that one, that one still has some shelf life left in it. When you listen to the details, a lot of it is still extremely relevant, even this week, I would say. Right. When I watched, and I know we're going back in the baseball, we promise you it's football, but when I heard that, I laughed. When I watched both Alderson's postgame on Wednesday, and then I saw Kernan, and by the way, you know also got into it, Terry? On Wednesday, did you notice our good friend, Mr. Matt, Rich Catino? Mm. And he called Catino out. See, Catino backed off when Terry is. Kevin kept going. And I was like, yes, yes. Oh, Joe, you have no idea. I'm watching this at home. I'm like, oh, I wish I was in that room. I was chomping at the bit. Because let me tell you, I've been in that room when he's done press conferences, and I've kept my tongue, bit my tongue, because you're at the little kid's table. They're letting you in, and I don't have an, you know, an affiliation. and i trying to play nice with, with Shannon and Jay. I really don't want to do that, especially Shannon. She's always been good to, to, to me. But, oh, Joe, I got to tell you, I was chumming at the bit. And when Sandy gave his BS, oh, see, Sandy, Sandy's problem is he thinks everybody's a, a dopey mongo. And the reality is that guys like me who have half a brain and maybe a little bit of education, I know that we didn't uh, go to Vietnam like Sandy. And, you know, I, very interesting stuff about Sandy in Vietnam and in the Baseball Maverick book. But I could read through his BS because I know where it's coming from. He's a lawyer, like Kernan said. Oh, boy. But Terry, Terry was close to popping on Wednesday. And when he started on the social media, get off my lawn rant, well, I got to bring them in and, and, and I got to go out there and I got to tell them he is suspended because their phones are going to light up. So what's the solution, Terry? What's the solution? You want to put an embargo on news until you go in and tell the players? Let's call MLB. Hey, Terry Collins is not ready to announce the suspension. Come on. I still think the leak came from Milwaukee. I think the Mets had nothing. I know for a fact, Sandy Olsen does not like leaks and does not play the re- – see, Omar played the reporter game where he'd favor one after another. Sandy doesn't do that. Sandy doesn't like agents. Sandy doesn't like reporters. I know, I know that for a fact. Sandy hates agents because it's actually somebody who goes back at him on his BS. So there's your next PSA. But anyway. On to the football. On yes. to the training camp. Sheldon Richardson. Interesting day. Well, he's, he's, you know what, Mike? Are you counting I on did. him now? That pick looks even bigger now, the draft pick. Oh, Leonard Williams, absolutely. But here's the thing. It's like, you know, based on what's happened in the NFL, especially last year, 
you want to take the high road as an organization and you want to speak in terms of like we have certain standards that we need to meet as an organization. We have expectations for our players, blah, blah, blah. But then when one of your best players, one of the players you're counting on the most disappoints you like this, it's very hard just to take the high road and say, well, you know what? We're going to cut you. We're going to let you play defensive line for some other team. It just ain't going to happen. So the guy's already suspended for the four games. Everyone knows the details by now. 143 miles an hour, three people, three young people in the car, including a 12-year-old, a loaded gun. He's got weed in the car. You know, he said he just had a bad day. Now, in his press conference, in his little media scrum, he said all the right things. I apologize to my teammates. I apologize to the coaches. You won't hear my name. But my question is to the Jets, what if it comes up one more time? Like, you know, is a, is a team going to allow him – like the Jets allow him another strike after this because he's going to get you suspended play, four games to start the year, and then after the personal code of conduct, he's probably going to miss half the year. He can miss half the year. I, I think. I mean, some people have said he'll never play another down in the NFL, and I, I, you know, with the NFL now, the legislation and with the flake gate and all this stuff that's been going on with the domestic violence. I mean, it's like it's as much as a political organization as it is a, a sports league. I don't. I don't think you could plan on him being around. You can't look. And you, Christian Dyer has done some really nice work for Metro. I know he's been on the show. Maybe we'll get him on in the next couple of weeks. But um, I think the big takeaway with this regime, and you read in one of his pieces that already the players anonymously are saying, "Well, let's see what happens." You know, you don't want to throw bouquets at a at a front office and coaching staff. You know, days into the first training camp. But a big difference in accountability and attention to detail than under Rex the last couple of years. Rex wouldn't care. It's like, oh, let's go get him, my wild band of drunken sailors. This organization, McGagnon and with Bowles, is going to be accountability. Just like, look, I'll tell you what, with the Mets, with Mejia, they can absolutely use him next year in the second half. I don't know if they want him anymore. And I think organizations that set a standard, that have a standard of, of conduct, have to sometimes make decisions on players and not say, well, uh, they're good, let's look the other way. You, you, there's a certain degree that you always have to do that in sports, but maybe they're going to say, hey, look, this is not the example, because you do it for Sheldon Richardson, where do you draw the line? And I think that early on, there's going to be more accountability and more of a culture of professionalism. An early, early had, test. Was under a direct strike. Early, early test for a new regime, Mike. Really tough for Todd Bowles to have to be out there answering these type of questions on the first days right. of training camp. Um, so and we'll let me throw this out there. Let mm-hmm. me throw this out there. I keep hearing. Throw it out there. Throw it out there. I know this is going to be my, you know, you know, already I'm reading that Fitzpatrick looks better than him. And, 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 and again, this is this means nothing two days in. But I, you know, let me tell you, Joe, I'm not going to, I'm going to blow this year. I'm really going to blow. If I start seeing the same crap out of him and I hear the excuses, and I don't, see, this is the, that's the real test to me. Geno Smith. They have no allegiance to this guy. None. Zero. And now he's Gino mad Smith. because he's a 32nd quarterback rated by, I guess, uh, uh, Ron Jaworski. By ESPN or whatever it was. He is. He's the worst quarterback in the league. He's not even a, he's not even a serviceable fantasy backup. If you can't be a serviceable fantasy backup in a league where probably you could go out, Joe, and maybe throw 300 yards at some point, there's a problem with him. I'm rooting yeah. for Ryan Fitzpatrick, and I predict, here it is, August 1st, I predict that 
Brian Fitzpatrick will be the quarterback of the New York Jets on week one, opening week. The Jets quarterback situation can be similar to the Mets offense. Like wasting, they're going to be wasting a defense and wasting some really good skilled players they have this year. Although they got bad news with Devin Smith breaking his ribs. Oh God, you know, second round pick out of Ohio State breaks his ribs, going to miss all the training camp. Um, but they still got depth there with Decker, Marshall, and Curley. But you know, if and now they got all that. Yeah, and yeah. listen, and the door is open. Listen, we don't. I don't know exactly how this is all going to play out, but NFL withhold, you know, upholding the Brady suspension four games and and four not easy games for the Patriots. You know, if they go one and three, two and two, yeah, you're, the door is slightly ajar, where you can maybe win a division for a change. How about that? Win a division, do something. Patriots have lost a lot of key parts from last year. A lot of key parts from hey, last in year. In four weeks, this is not like four baseball games. Four weeks, you can't mess around in the quarter NFL. of the season, quarter of the year. You start, you start out one and three, zero oh and four. That's a big problem. That's not easy to make up. That's your your season could could go away right away. And the and and the Patriots last year were on the precipice after a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, now and they, and they recovered. So. Now Giants wise. I don't know like who's James giving the advice. I don't know like, who's giving like the GP. Pierre. What? James like Jones James signing? Jones signing? Yeah. yeah, I mean, listen, it's a depth receiver. He knows McAdoo's system. He's going to be the fourth wide receiver. I mean, they're stacked there. I mean, Victor Cruz, people did not think he'd be ready for the first day of training camp, and there he is. And Beckham looks uh-huh. great, according to all the reports. And, and Randall, if he can keep And I know you want to talk about JPP. I mean, but here's the thing. He got he might have a really – this might be a very different giant. We, remember a couple of years ago when I was still – you would come on every week and I was on Champions. We were talking about a historically good Giants offense a couple of years ago, and it never mm-hmm. transpired. Remember. You remember that? This might actually be what we thought 2013 would be. This, I mean, I know that the, the, well, the owners said they could win there's Champions. One, there's, it's going to come down to the offensive line, and right now your two most important parts of your offensive line are generally your tackles. And because of the Will Beatty injury, you got Eric Flowers, a rookie. They wanted to play right tackle, playing left tackle. And you got Marshall Newhouse, who played for the Bengals, but not particularly well at right tackle. And if you ask anyone around the Giants who they're worried about, it's him at right tackle. Um, so whether or not they get in, they've had conversations with Jake Long, but obviously he's had a big, a lot of problems staying healthy. Um, we'll see if Jake Long is the guy or someone else becomes available down the road and emerges as someone that can play tackle. But that's the scary part for the Giants because between Shane Vereen and Rashad Jennings and Andre Williams, they got three big-time running backs, or three very good running backs. They're all different. All do different, have a different skill set. We know about the wide receiving core. Larry Donnell, if he just stops fumbling, um, showed that he can be a very comparable, uh, a very strong uh, receiving tight end. Listen, defense, they don't have a lot of depth there in the secondary. That scares me. And they're always, you know, worried about the linebacking core. And John Beeson says he's finally healthy, feels 100%. But if he goes down again, then they're going to have a very weak core. And, and Prince Amukamura was on with Joe and Evan. They were live from Giants camp yesterday. And he said that JPP is our best defensive player. He is our Eli Manning on defense. And I was like, well, I don't think really a JPP has the leadership skills of, of Eli Manning. But I understand the point. And we can't underestimate what that impact is, that he's probably, at best-case scenario, going to be joining this team in November. Best-case scenario. And based on what we saw at the Paw, I mean, I guess he could play the position, I mean, what right? did you expect? What did you expect? But I don't know who was giving this guy advice to where, like what John Mara said, and this is classic Giants, he said, hey, just come home. 
We just want to, we want to take care. You're one of our own guys. Uh, we got, you got medical. I mean, it's, it's, I know he's probably embarrassed. I mean, he acted like a seven year old. He's shooting off fireworks. He blows his hand off. I mean, Joe. I mean, this is just so stupid. It, when you watch that HBO Ballers thing and you see the silliness of that show, and then you read what these guys do, they make no sense. They make no sense. You know what? You, you know how I would protect sixty million dollar contract. I probably would be like a mother a bear with her cubs and try. You know, I wouldn't. You know, I mean, I, you got to watch out. Even going uh, jet skiing with this stuff, you got to watch out. Playing basketball. I mean, crossing the street. I mean, you got to be careful. And this guy's out there. I mean, go, oh, you go ball up a, a van of fire. Was it fun? Did it make the noise it made? Was it worth it? I mean, it's it'll really be. Uh, it'll certainly be on probably a season two episode of Ballers, which, by the way, is the most popular thirty minute. HBO series since 2009. Since what, Entourage? I'm guessing Entourage. I would. I, that's my guess, but not bad for The Rock. No, and I, you, think, um, I think with Entourage leaving. Were you impacted by Rowdy Roddy Piper's? Um, nah, I do remember uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper back in the day. I'm not into wrestling. I know we bring I, in wrestling for two minutes, but then that, I, I mean, can't, I can't I, get it into it. It happens all the time. Just happens all the time. Like, child, a piece of the childhood just kind of gets ripped away. Sixty-one years old. So I mm. went to a game. You went to a game this week, and we didn't get a chance to. I guess when you get back from hand waving August, we could get together for pennant race baseball. Well, after I wasn't invited to the Tuesday night game, I wasn't going to invite I you. I was invited last Friday. minute on one ticket. What did you want me to do? To have you go sit in the upper deck, and we could be at the same ballpark? I it wasn't my tickets. They weren't all my right. tickets. No, it's fine. No, they're never your tickets. I you, you can't make it. You can't make a seven o'clock game all, during the week twice. Yeah, I can. I could do it. I could do it, especially if I take the train. Just the ride home would be miserable. Um, but Fridays are good because I could just kind of bail out a little early, get right. home, and get in the car, and right. uh, and walk That's on right. over. I was not leaving. You would have probably left early yesterday. I was not leaving that game. Luckily for no. the Mets, they play very quick games because there's no, no scoring. So you know, not a twelve inning game only goes. Four, it doesn't go four hours. I mean, if they were getting blown out eight nothing in the eighth inning, yeah, I'll go up the game, but not, not, not an extra. I stayed for the whole Syndergaard game, and let me tell you, I gave. I he, the Nationals should be reading my Twitter feed. I heated warning, fooling around with this division. This division should be done and over with. Now, after the next couple of games, let's see. Now, if the Mets lose the next couple of games, not the end of the world, but I'm not going to be taking the Mets seriously as I would have in this show. So if somebody gets they, up on the morning, they got to. And listen, I don't like playing this game because the records always seem like unobtainable. But if they got to eighty-eight and seventy-four, is that enough for a, a, a postseason berth? If, if they have to do better than that, that's a lot. If they have to do better than lot. that, doing be eighty-eight is going to be tough. I'll tell you what. They better hope the Nationals don't go on another sixteen and four run, and they have it in them. They have it in them. So it all depends on the Nationals, and that's the scary part. With that, I leave my ominous, ominous warning till next week, which is your final show until you hand wave the rest of the summer. I want to thank Kevin Kern of the New York Post, Philip Bondi of the Daily News, for joining us on today's show. If you want to listen to the show live or replay, go to WeekendWatchShows.com, send us a tweet at MikeSilverMedia, at jbono 611 and check us out on iTunes as well as the Weekend Watchdogs Facebook page. Joe, see you next week. Big week of baseball. We'll talk soon. Take care, everybody. Take care, Mike.